0: Minji, it's an absolute honor to have you on MLST. It's an honor to be here. Cool, cool. Um, tell us, tell us about yourself.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm currently a final year PhD student at UCL, Dark, uh, where I'm advised by professors Tim Rockteschel and Edward Grefenstette. Um, I've been focused on autocurricular learning and deep reinforcement learning, and I have a deep interest in open-ended systems, in particular the connection between auto-curricula in reinforcement learning settings and open-endedness, o- open-ended learning. So tell me about your background. Um, so I grew up in New Jersey, um, moved to the U.S. when I was five from China, um, and uh, grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, ended up going to school in Princeton. Uh, I studied computer science, uh, minored in creative writing. Uh, After college, I worked at Google for a couple of years as a uh, product manager, as part of the associate product manager uh, program there, uh, which is basically a training program for PMs. And I worked on the Google Translate team for the first rotation. And so that got my first exposure to uh, production ML systems um, from a more product side. Uh, We had lots of meetings with the researchers. There was quite a large research team there. Uh, So it's cool to see sort of the forefront of NLP research at the time. Uh, And this was still very much pre-deep learning. Um, And I then spent a half a year working on the Android team, where I basically was part of the initial team that started uh, a product that became Google Fit. And so um, I was uh, one of the PMs that wrote the initial spec for Google Fit uh, in terms of the fitness tracking features and what that could become in terms of a, a like a wellness data platform. And uh, afterwards, around that time, I was learning a lot about the healthcare industry. So then I basically had a few ideas for startups and one of them actually led me to quit Google and try try my hand at doing the startup thing. Uh, quickly realized that healthcare was not the industry I was cut out for, uh, given, <laughs> given my background. And so uh, eventually did find my way into an interesting space around consumer products, and then later um, building more of a SaaS product uh, with one of my best friends from college, uh, Peter Zakin. And the two of us ended up starting a company called Hyper Travel, which was basically a chat-based concierge for business travelers. And it's actually quite an interesting idea still, I think, especially now with large language models. Um, And so we kind of joked that we started uh, an AGI company for travel because it was essentially connecting business travelers to... um, actual human expert travel consultants that we hired um, in our backend. And we essentially built software that allowed each of those agents to scale their productivity out to handle hundreds of requests a day. Um, so it was very much a human in the loop type of um, business model where we wanted to use automation to scale the productivity of humans and focused on the travel industry. So we worked on that company for, um, Three years, and we were acquired by another company in San Francisco called TradeShift. Um, and then after that, uh, after that event, uh, I had a more downtime to th- sort of think out, think out what I wanted to do next. And uh, around that time, um, a lot of interesting things were happening in deep learning. In particular, I was drawn to deep reinforcement learning um, as a budding subfield uh, that seemed very promising and uh, personally interesting uh, because in undergrad I had studied ML and had done an undergraduate research thesis in probabilistic graphical models. Um, But I also had dabbled a bit in reinforcement learning. Um, In like an early edition of Sutton and Bardo, I had read some of that material. Um, And so I started to self-study a lot of the machine learning concepts, dove back into Christopher uh, Bishop's book and started reading a bit of, uh, went through all of Sutton and Bardo, Um, and decided, actually, I, wanted, I really wanted to dive into this and become more expert in this. That seemed like the most interesting thing to do at the time. Also really believed that this would be a really pivotal technology in, like, in the, the years going forward. And so I, at the time, I figured, you know, no matter what I wanted to do next, uh, I know I'm going to stay in technology. I want to be someone who's actively working on uh, the most cutting-edge technology. And so I figured, actually, probably it's a really good investment of my time to go back and go to school and basically, uh, you know, do the best thing I can to become an expert, which is I think to do a PhD in this area. And so that's kind of what led me to essentially quitting industry and going back into academia uh, to pursue uh, the PhD. Yeah, so I wanna pick up on the thread of the startup and also what you just spoke about, but a quick
0: shout out to um, Tim and Ed, if you're watching, <laughs> guys are legends. Um, you're very, very lucky to be working. Yeah, They're incredibly very, lucky. Very, very lucky. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe, um, just, just quickly touching on what you just spoke about. So yeah, PR, uh, PRML and Sutton and Barto, two of the Bibles of machine learning. And I guess one, one comment to make is, do you feel that reading those books now are still incredibly, you know, from a theoretical perspective, mm-hmm. cause you're, you're taking it to the next level,
1: but it, it gives you a, a real basis, right? Yeah, I agree. Just knowing stuff about um like more fundamental concepts like bias variance trade-off and just going through the motions and uh deriving that from scratch i think that gives you a lot of uh a lot more intuition in terms of uh machine learning and it allows you to yeah like you said like have the foundations to actually build on new knowledge um if you're reading like a new paper on archive you can contextualize it more quickly if you have the right foundations
0: yeah yeah i mean even even reading your paper we'll talk about in a bit uh, sometimes the easiest way to explain a concept is to say, well, supervised learning, basically it's just modeling, you know, conditional probability, probability theory. Um, it's, but in a sense, it's a trap because when people understand probability theory, it, it's it's the most abstract and powerful way to communicate a concept. But it does increasingly isolate people who don't know that probability mm-hmm. theory from understanding what you mean.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that there's a fine balance to be struck uh, in terms of, Um, in terms of like the level of abstraction that you want to work with, the level of rigor as well, like in terms of the mathematical tools you use, um, like I have spent a bit of time trying to learn, uh, like going deeper into measure theory. Um, but I will say I'm definitely not an expert in measure theory. And I've spoken with, um, actually quite a few more senior researchers. And I remember asking, um, my undergrad advisor, David Bly, you know, should, how much time should I be spending, like actually like learning Mm. measure theory, um, for if I want to do ML research, and his advice was actually not to to go too deep on it, to, to spend too much time on it. Um, and he basically, you know, said that most of what he uses day to day at the time was um, he kind of just learned on the job. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I, I think as I've as I've matured more as um, I guess as a researcher and also as someone who's just spent more time day to day learning new concepts in ML and in math. Um, I found that that really is one of the best ways to mm-hmm. learn, which is just kind of follow the branches of knowledge towards um, what you need to know for a particular problem. It's very useful to ground the learning in a particular goal.
0: Yes, and there's lots of puns in your language on, on your paper as well, which we'll get to in a little <laughs> while. But no, I'm, I'm the same. When I was doing my PhD, when I read textbooks, they were they were very abstract. In a sense, you could argue textbooks are written for people who already understand it because it's at the highest level of abstraction. Um, but it is very powerful and, and um, a, a great way to explain concepts to people who do understand it. But there's always this tug of war between yeah. bottom up versus top down. And I'm, I'm the same. I, I tend to, or um, well, when I did learn all of this stuff, it was very bottom up. I started with the concrete and yeah. now I've developed the abstract. And now when I read papers and books, I actually understand it. And I'm thinking to myself, God, I wish I just understood it the first time, round. But I, I wanted to touch on your startup as well. So I'm, I'm building a startup and I, I think, I mean, first of all, power to you. It's amazing. It, in, in a sense, it's it's a good time to be alive, right? Yeah.
1: We're we're on the forefront. The most maybe the most exciting time to be alive in human history.
0: You're you're not wrong. Yeah. And there's such opportunity now for people who have a good idea. I mean, I was speaking to Connor Leahy the other day and he said, Look, you know, the market's not as efficient as we think it is. There are so many opportunities. If if you've got the will and the inclination and you've got a good idea, and obviously it's the execution, it's not mm-hmm. the idea. But um, it is it is possible to get funded. It is possible to execute on the idea. So how did how did you fund and execute on your startup?
1: Um, so I'm trying to recall, just because it's been a f- few years. But basically, um, we so we basically lived off of our savings for about a year. Um, and essentially, I about so I was at Google for a year and a half. About a year in, I kind of knew I wanted to do a startup as the next thing. And so around that time, I started to just like reduce my personal expenditure and started to save uh, into, you know, my checkings account, tried to build up a little bit of savings um, for this sort of like long haul in terms of, I wanted at least uh, a year and a half of runway to basically be able to work on a lots of different ideas. Um, and I don't think I, so I didn't go into it with a specific product in mind. And I think my experience kind of reinforced this idea that I don't think if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to build a company, I don't think you necessarily need to have a a fully formed idea in mind. And in many ways, it's impossible to have that because the ideas don't materialize until they come into contact with the real world, with real users in the market. And so I think the only way to really discover something that has product market fit, something that will work. Uh, to some degree as a startup, is to actually go out and force yourself to build something. Hmm. Um, and so that's effectively what my co-founder and I ended up doing, where we basically both quit our jobs and um, kind of just put uh, put all of our skin in the game, so to speak, and uh, lived off of savings for a year, um, slowly watched as our savings uh, depleted. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But we, we iterated through several ideas. Um, actually, one of the first things we built was actually a a product that I still rather like, um, called Once, and it was essentially, in many ways, it was an Instagram clone, uh, and it was kind of us cutting our teeth in terms of just learning to be iOS developers and yeah. building these end-to-end, um, you know, uh, end-to-end apps with a backend and everything. And uh, but I also think the concept was quite interesting. So it was not exactly an Instagram clone. The idea was that you can only post one thing a day. And that's why it was called Once. And so the idea was the app would send you a notification uh, at a random time in the day. I, we eventually set it to a specific time, but essentially it would say, uh, why don't you update your Once with you know what, what, whatever is happening today? And so the idea was that it acted as your personal diary, uh, mm. but it was also optionally social. So you could basically opt in to share your specific once-a-day posts with friends. Um, and it grew to a few thousand users. Um, but beyond that, we couldn't figure out, uh, how to scale it more. Um, and so how to grow the user base more. Um, and so like after about half a year of working on this, we ended up, uh, shifting gears and started looking at other ideas. But, uh, it's funny because now, now it's been about five, six years since then. And there's actually an app called, uh, I think it's called be real and it's actually a very similar concept. Um, but I do think, uh, there were a few very clever, uh, sort of growth, uh, growth, Oriented features that we did not come up with, hmm. uh, that I think makes be real uh, be real work really well, um, yeah. and so like this idea, I think they have a feature where it's essentially uh, sort of double opt-in, where you basically have to you have to post something, you have to share something in order for you to be able to see what your friends are sharing, and so I think that's quite a that's quite a clever feature. Um yes. Yeah. Because there, there's the perennial cold start problem. Yeah. Yeah. I
0: mean, we were talking on on the way over here about. Um, some folks might use language models to seed. Let's say you've got a dating website. or yeah. Then you might have a language model. I mean, that that's very unethical, of course. But
1: yeah, it's the uh, famous story around Reddit. How Reddit uh, oh, yes, sort of bootstrapped right. its activity by by faking a lot of user data in the early days.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the the innovation thing. Um, so I worked in a corporate incubator, and I I ran one of the startups. It was a code review startup. And um, as I was speaking with Joe Lemon the other day, who um, Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who did this? Greatness cannot be planned. Book. There's a constant tug of war between serendipity and planning. Mm-hmm. And it was quite funny in this corporate innovator uh, place because they had all of these metrics about how and um, what's your goal and and you know how can you measure what you're doing and so on. And then on the other side, they were taking all of this content from Y Combinator, talking all about the rate of innovation and the rate of innovation is basically serendipity. It's about you know, the um, cycling through as many ideas as possible to find your yep. product market fit and discarding them as quickly as possible after eliciting information, yep. hopefully from your customers. Um, so yeah, um, it, it is actually a remarkable, you know, people don't like to admit this, but it's a remarkably kind of serendipitous process.
1: Sure. I would totally agree with that. And I think that's one reason why the Bay Area still has the reputation for being sort of um, the epicenter for startups. Mm. Um, I think that a lot of it is due to serendipity scaling with um, the size of, basically, with the density of the network. Um, so you can't really plan for serendipity, but I think you can design your environment, so to speak, uh, to optimize for serendipity. And so I think the Bay Area has sort of just, in an emergent way, become this epicenter where you know it's very much o- optimized for these serendipitous interactions between. Um, founders, technologists, investors, researchers, and um, tracing back to like a really rich history with like, um, you know, different um, like wartime projects that were happening at uh, Stanford and also the transistors, uh, the, the transistor revolution hmm. that happened in the the Bay Area as well. Um, so I think that in many ways, it's still like an amazing place to be uh, and probably the best place to be still. But I do think that places like London are catching up as well in terms of uh, yeah. becoming like an AI hub where you have this like amazing um, collection of top universities, top research centers, and like corporate research centers, um, and startups all being interested in the future of technology centered around AI.
0: What What do you think? Because I'm reading Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. It really signed me on to this idea of um, basically serendipity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And speaking to Joel the other day, we kind of arrived on this idea that it's something that runs through the center of all of us. So the the book made me become far more open-ended and then there's there's an analogy to your research which we'll get into but there's a fundamental trade-off between kind of like allowing yourself to be open to new ideas everything about what we know what we experience how we've been conditioned our ideas they kind of truncate the traversable space Mm -hmm. and there are all of these really interesting stepping stones that lead to greatness and we're simply not paying attention to them yeah but sometimes if we pay too much attention to all of the intermediate stepping stones and we don't have a plan, that's not good either, is it? So yep. it's some kind of mixture of the two.
1: Yep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, as, as time goes on, just like in one's life, I think you you kind of have to start to make choices in terms of uh, what what things do you actually, like when, basically like when do you actually decide to stop exploring? Uh, where, where basically exploitation starts to take over as like the main um, strategy that you follow rather than one of exploration um, but I think that like the book why greatness is Plan- why greatness cannot be planned which is uh yeah definitely one of my favorite books in um, in machine learning maybe just in general one of my mm-hmm. favorite books that I've read um, I think that um, I think really I guess the message for me was that it's always good to to keep some space some room save some room for exploration um so like don't over exploit something always have some you know, some percentage of the time or some amount of your resources that are spent on more blue sky or, uh, open-ended, uh, exploratory paths. Hmm. And so I think, but I think this is generally a pattern that like a lot of different institutions and even individuals like develop over time. Like, I think that it kind of reflects a lot of just, um, uh, sort of emergent behaviors that people already follow and like institutions already follow, um, Because like most companies do have R and D and like Skunk Works divisions, Mm -hmm. and in many ways it's kind of their their approach for trying to it's their strategy for trying to um, walk this divide between um, this balance between exploiting their existing uh, line of products or services and exploring new ones, Um, and so that's like an obvious thing that most companies do. Um, but it is interesting because I think that while companies do this, probably a lot of individuals don't do this as much in their day-to-day lives. Like, I think a lot of people do end up just sort of converging, right? Like in terms of this is what, um, like sort of, this is a setup in my life that is good. And so I will just, I will just keep this. Um, but there's also nothing wrong with doing that. Like, I think that's totally, um, a good thing to do. Like for, if you just want like a stable, um, If you want a stable lifestyle and you have discovered some lifestyle that works for you like i think that's um that's very good in many ways to Mm -hmm. just continue to exploit that setup but also i think having open-ended is is nice because um it allows you to be and like we can talk about more more about this in connection to research but having a more open-ended um process allows you to be more robust to you know any shifts in your environment because even though you might exploit a certain environmental set of conditions that allows you to achieve like your goals in the current present time, um, the world is non-stationary, and in general, like uh, you want to to be fully um, to maximize like whatever goal or like reward that you are trying to optimize for in the real world, you need to be robust to non-stationary factors in the environment. Yeah. and being open-ended, having more exploratory behaviors. Um, in your behavioral repertoire is one way to actually uh, remain robust to these kinds of changes in your environment. Interesting. One thing you said that I I had slightly the opposite intuition is I
0: feel that individuals rely much more on subjectivity, but there are um, pressures and rules all over the place. You know, like we're expected to Mm -hmm. get married, to get a job, to do this, to do do that. But it feels like there's more space for subjectivity when we are individuals. And, And Joel said something interesting, which is that when you have a collection of individuals, like at the society level, we tend to create regularizing top-down forces, be they religion, institutions or whatever. And then when you have these institutions and corporations, you tend to get these emergent forms of consensus, like, mm-hmm. you know, which yeah. is basically the objectification, the yeah. metrics and so on. So um, yeah, and, and but even then, I, I like this idea that we seem to simultaneously hold both things in our mind, which is we, And part of it is because the metric thing sounds very scientific. It sounds objective, Mm -hmm. you know, by definition, it's also intelligible and it's, and it's something which is easy to communicate success. It's about communicating success. So I think many people communicate using the language of objectives, but that's not necessarily how they actually think and behave. It's kind of like a weird mixture.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think objectives are definitely useful for, um, for guiding your own behavior. Uh, or the behavior of like an institution or uh, like a machine learning model. Um, But yeah, ultimately I think most like pretty much every objective runs into this paradox which is like described by Goodhart's law where Hmm. once you start to over optimize for your objective, which is always going to be a proxy for, it's typically a proxy for what the thing you actually want to optimize is, um, then you can get into the situation where you obviously start to overexploit the proxy measure rather than um, actually improve On the true objective that you care about, Um, and like why greatness uh, cannot be planned, has a lot of really great examples of this. Like yeah, the um, yeah yeah yeah, exactly, and like it like education as well. Just like teaching to the test, you end up teaching for kids to pass the SAT rather than um, the actual content, the actual material, and and like in a lot of ways, you can even imagine like the research uh, ecosystem right now is fallen prey to some of that behavior as well.
0: Yeah. And a lot of this is about um, the limits of representation because uh, Keith, uh, you know, the the other co-interviewer, he said, well, if I design a test where it's not possible to shortcut, because this is the shortcut rule, this is what Cholet calls the shortcut rule. And an example of that would be memorizing as many numbers as possible. Yeah. And there is no shortcut for that. You'll either do it or you won't. Whereas if if you're looking at a benchmark for like a SAT score or something like that, it's actually representing something underlying, which is much more complicated.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think it's, um, I think just defining good measures of what, uh, ways of measuring what we actually care about. I think that itself, uh, deserves a lot more study. I think there's not really a great, um, I I guess like in the machine learning literature, I think that could be a subject that warrants a lot more attention. Mm. Uh, basically how do we actually, how do we actually do better, um, definitions of the metrics we care about? How do we actually define, um, different notions like robustness, general uh, generality of the policies. Um, some of the work that I've been involved with definitely seeks to do that um, with, uh, with different notions of robustness. And in particular, um, and we can talk about this more, but it's uh, one notion that we've uh, really liked is around minimax regret. Um, so this notion of an agent that tries to minimize its worst case regret. Mm-hmm. And um, this is an idea taken from decision theory. Um, and it's an idea that was uh, first uh, first uh, introduced in a very principled way by a collaborator, Michael Dennis, uh, in his paper um, at NeurIPS in 2020, uh, 2021, uh, where basically he he introduces this idea of having uh, a multi agent system that tries to uh, that tries to optimize for a minimax regret policy, and I think this is nice because it's it's quite a departure from the typical um, the typical objective used in reinforcement learning, which is based on um, expectation maximization, so maximizing mm-hmm. the expected discounted return of the agent. Um, and a lot of the um, a lot of the value of this alternative objective is that um, realizing that actually, in if you want to build a general agent that inhabits the world, um, it's going to inhabit again like this world that's non-stationary, where you don't really know exactly the distribution of events that will happen. And so in other words, um, the agent out in the world is making decisions under uncertainty. And so this is a setting in decision theory called decision making under uncertainty, which is basically saying, um, if I don't know what state of the world is, or I don't know exactly what outcome uh, will happen, um, how do I make the best decision? And there's many different decision theories. Uh, that basically uh, have their own arguments for what you should do in that situation. And uh, minimax regret uh, is actually a w- very well-argued uh, way to do this. And basically, again, it's just saying I want to take the action that minimizes my worst-case regret, no matter what outcome happens. Um, and so this is nice, a nice alternative to expectation maximization because in this setting, you can't do expectation maximization. It's basically this realization that if you're out in the world under uncertainty, um, there's no distribution Hmm. that you can actually optimize the expectation for. Um, So like in the general case, you might be in any environment uh, where you don't really know the distribution or the transitions of events that will happen. And so you're you're deciding under uncertainty. And so you actually want, it's probably preferable in this case, to basically behave in a way that um, makes you robust to... These uncertain outcomes. Um, because there really is no alternative uh, to doing that. Like The alternative would be to assume some arbitrary distribution over the outcomes. Um, so there's this thing called Laplace's principle, which is basically the, um, the principle of ignorance, this is, uh, where basically the idea is you just assume that all outcomes are uniformly distributed, are all equal probability. Um, but of course, that's kind of a naive assumption. But if you make these kinds of assumptions, you basically, that's what you would have to do in order to maximize uh, an expectation. Mm -hmm. So instead, um, basically the viewpoint that we've taken in a lot of the previous work is we should instead be optimizing for some decision-making behavior that carries with it a notion of robustness in decision-making under an uncertainty of possible outcomes.
0: Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's a lovely follow-on from the discussion of Goodhart's law and and proxy metrics, and as you say, um, robustness, accuracy um there are so many and we'll introduce reinforcement learning properly later so we won't go too deep into it but um as you say by default there's this kind of marginal distribution of trajectories and it's quite an interesting approach that you just said that actually we can think about well i i I want the worst possible uh, trajectory to be not that bad Mm -hmm. um, which is and, and there are things like upside down reinforcement learning and even Benjo's G flow nets where rather than just learning the top of the mode of the distribution you let you know you kind of mm-hmm. you yes. learn the entire distribution so there's all of these trade-offs
1: and you know which is best it's so difficult to know I think with G flow nets things like um, where basically you try to uh, you basically try to find all all modes of your uh, distribution um, and you want to basically sample all of them in proportion to how good they are basically yeah. Um I think these kinds of things still fall within the realm where you have a stationary objective for which you can optimize a fixed expectation. So there is some underlying distribution that you know and can optimize against. Um, I think with a lot of the robustness work that we've done, a lot of the focus is in settings where you're ignorant to the actual underlying distribution. So the idea is I want to be robust in the sense that um, I can... I will not do that badly no matter what the actual distribution at test time is. And so I will basically remain robust in the sense of uh, minimizing my worst case regret no matter what the distribution is at test time. Mm-hmm. And so then, um, and we can get into this more too, but basically it comes down to during training, we basically want to expose the agent to lots and lots of different variations on the environment. Um, in particular, we want to push the agent uh, along a curriculum of environments. Uh, such that the agent is constantly being challenged with environments where it is environments that do maximize the agent's regret. Mm -hmm. And we want the agent to learn on those environments. And by learning on those environments that challenge uh, its current decision-making, it can improve. And so in the future, it'll effectively uh, be more robust on those settings. And what's nice about this framework is that um, from a theoretical point of view, you can model this as a two-player zero-sum game where the payoff to the environment, to mother nature, that's presenting the environment, or you can view it as an adversarial teacher that's designing a curriculum or uh, a set of environments to train the agent on, you can um, view this as a zero-sum game where the teacher's payoff is the regret of the student. And the student is uh, rewarded for minimizing its regret, right? And so so the regret becomes the payoff in this zero-sum game. And we know that all two-player zero-sum games have a Nash equilibrium under mixed strategies. And so, basically, there must be some um, there must be some stochastic policy that the agent can follow uh, in any of these settings, such that it is playing uh, what's called a minimax regret policy, hmm. where basically um, where basically it cannot do better uh, by behaving differently. It can't do better uh, in a way that further minimizes its worst case regret. And we know that uh, all two player games have such an optimal strategy, which is the Nash equilibrium of Mm -hmm. the two-player game. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the motivation for a lot of the algorithms we've developed in this framework is we essentially frame the algorithm, or the high-level concept of these algorithms is you can basically view the algorithm as having two main pieces, one being the student and one being the teacher. And the teacher typically takes the form of like um, a task generator. And so in the reinforcement learning setting, um, the teacher would be an environment generator. It would be um, some module that presents uh, a design of the environment, and then that is like the that is like the action or the the high level uh, strategy that's chosen by the teacher for that turn, and the student then will try to solve that environment. And so each iteration of this presenting a new task, having the student solve the task, you can view that as a turn in this iterated game. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, uh, over time. As the system evolves, uh, because of this two-player zero-sum dynamics in this game, you you can basically analyze it such that you assume that at some point it goes towards an equilibrium. At this equilibrium, the student plays this robust minimax regret policy, and so it's essentially a way for us to devise an algorithmic system uh, with two agents such that at the convergence of the system, you have a very robust student policy. Um, But that's with many caveats, of course. So, like in practice. Uh, most, you know, we we are optimizing these things with uh, stochastic gradient descent. And so most stochastic gradient descent methods do not converge to Nash equilibria in these kinds of multi-agent systems. And so um, in practice, it's very, uh, it's unlikely that it goes towards this actual robust equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a bit of a, it's a theoretical motivation that I think is quite good because empirically we have shown that you do learn more robust policies, uh, using these algorithms, but there is a theoretical gap between practice and theory because the theory is based on, um, this decision, theoretic, uh, this decision, theoretic, this game, theoretic lens. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is based on, uh, normal form games. So theory of normal form games, where essentially the game is just like a table. And essentially, it's saying if I take action A and you take action B, what's the payoff? And then, like, if we play this for many turns, where like what will we? Uh, and we keep updating our strategies to be you know improve improvements against each other, best responses to each other. Um, where will we end up? Like, what will be an equilibrium policy that we play? But in practice, the actual systems we study are not tables. They're um, systems where the agent actually uh, is performing a sequence of actions mm-hmm. and in fact um it's performing a sequence of actions and that means that the agent receives additional information throughout throughout one turn of the game because as the agent's um evolving its trajectory inside of uh, an environment that's proposed by the teacher the agent is actually can learn additional information about the environment so it's not a perfect story in terms of de- uh it's not a perfect analogy in terms of um decision making under ignorance and this uh, this robustness setting and reinforcement learning right because it's not purely like at test time uh the agent is completely oblivious to the outcome where the outcome is the kind of environment it's in um because the agent can explore within the episode and get more information about the environment and so there is a slight mismatch in the theory although i do think it's bridgeable like i think there's additional um there are there's additional extensions of this direction that can be made to make it, uh, coincide more directly to just, uh, at a higher level, just defining some of these terms. Um, so in reinforcement learning, we basically have an agent, uh, that is trying to optimize for some reward signal in the environment. And the way that, um, it's typically framed as a problem setting is that, uh, you're essentially embedded within a Markov decision process. And so basically, uh, given some, given some state of the world, um, You might have a partial Markov decision-making process where you only see part of the state, and so you see an observation given a state, or it might be fully observable in which you see the whole state as the input. And so the agent is just some neural network in deep reinforcement learning. It's some network that takes in the observation of the state of the world, and then given that observation, it has to output an action. And then that action is performed on the world. It's performed on the environment, and that action can change the environment. It can change the environment state, and it evolves the state to the next state um, and in that transition process the agent might also observe a reward signal and so the goal of reinforcement learning is to optimize this uh, uh, in practice a discounted uh, sum of all the reward uh, of all the rewards it receives going into the future yeah. starting from any state, uh, if it were to follow its current decision-making policy, and so reinforcement learning is like a fam- is also a family of algorithms that essentially um, optimize the agent's policy, uh, the weights of the agent's policy, such that you will you will move towards policies that maximize that further maximize this uh, discounted sum of future re- uh, rewards. Yes, and so uh, in in our setting. Essentially, the student is performing reinforcement learning um, on environments that are designed by the teacher, and in this two-player game, we can view it as uh, we can view it as a two-player zero-sum game. And essentially, in two-player zero-sum games, um, you basically learn in introductory game theory that basically um, all two-player zero-sum games have what's called a equilibrium, and it's in particular, it's called a Nash equilibrium. And so, in a Nash equilibrium, it means that um, all participants in the game are uh not incentivized to change how they're behaving they're not incentivized to change the current strategy um, as long as the other players are not changing their strategy Mm -hmm. so it means that as long as i continue doing what i'm doing you're not incentivized to change what you're doing and so we're in a it's, it's you can view it as almost like a form of deadlock as well because we're basically both stuck behaving in our ways unless one of us changes first decides to act differently and so every Two-player zero-sum game provably has a Nash equilibrium, um, and so this is this is um, this is part of uh, game theory that we leverage in in uh, developing these algorithms because we can we are again framing it as this zero-sum game between a teacher and a student, where the the payoff to the teacher is the regret. Uh, you can view the payoff to the student as the negative of the regret, um, and so basically, uh, we know that at this theoretical equilibrium point. Um, they should be playing a policy such that they're not incentivized to deviate from that policy. And so if regret is the payoff, then the policy you must be playing as a student such that you won't want to deviate from it, it must be a policy that minimizes your worst case regret. Okay. Okay. And um,
0: because I think a lot of people are intimidated by reinforcement learning. And if you already know about supervised learning, I mean, basically is supervised learning, but the policy, you might represent that with a machine learning model and very similar to how with large language models you take trajectories through a Mm. model so the next word and then this word and then this word, so you can imagine this this kind of um this tree structure and then you have this sparsity problem which is that you only get the reward at some point in the future so you have to traverse many steps and then you when you compute this expected value you discount it and people who know about computational finance you know it's basically how you compute compound interest? There's this exponential function, right? Mm-hmm. So you know you, you you compute this um this update and then and then you and then you can update your model, but um so so it it is just machine learning, but it but it's a
1: configuration of machine learning. I would um I would add to your uh I would add to the observation that it's similar to supervised learning with the because just to take a step back, I think the the similarity here is that the reward function is something that ultimately is like a supervisory signal that is basically saying this, this sequence of actions was good. This sequence of actions was bad because mm-hmm. one of them led to, you know, a high reward, total reward. And the other one led to maybe a negative reward. Um, I think that, but then the, I think that one of the key differences between reinforcement learning and supervised learning, like if I'm just training a cat versus dog classifier is that I do not have the trajectories and the reward labels for how good that trajectory is mm-hmm. a priori. I don't have that ahead of, ahead of time. Um, when I ha- have that ahead of time, I have rewards labeling different trajectories. Uh, that is a separate. That is a subfield of RL currently. But I. But like you're saying, I would also view that as a subset of supervised learning um, that people call offline RL. Yeah. And basically, it's essentially doing exactly what you're saying: supervised learning on reinforcement learning data. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in the full sense of reinforcement learning, in the general setting of reinforcement learning, you do not have access to the trajectories and the reward labels ahead of time. And so this is what introduces the idea of uh, the need for exploration, right? Because um, basically, you are, you are what you eat in this case, right? You are only as good as the data that you have. Um, and in reinforcement learning, you have to find your own data. So... This is like something that we talk about in the position piece, rethinking uh, exploration. And basically, um, one of the core ideas in that paper is that this is actually also a problem in supervised learning in the sense that in supervised learning, you are training on lots of data and labels, but it's always assumed that that data is just handed to you. But actually, there was an external process some human had, or a program, had to collect that data based on some criterion. So the exploration happened, but you're just not privy to that. It's just not part of the problem definition. So you're really only looking at maybe like the last chunk of the problem, Mm. because there was a whole, it's an iceberg, and there's a whole iceberg under the ocean that's the exploration problem that in traditional supervised learning people didn't think about, because we just assumed the data is already there. Someone already created ImageNet, but... What about creating ImageNet from scratch? Like what what had what would you have to do to train a model to automatically create a data set like ImageNet? And so in reinforcement learning, that is the problem. It's basically saying, I want to train a model that's really good at solving some task, but I don't have any data to start with. So you basically need to bootstrap. It's a there's a bootstrap problem. I need to basically be able to bootstrap a policy that can collect better and better trajectories or sequences of actions in performing my task. Um, And you need this process to eventually discover lots of trajectories Mm -hmm. that give you high reward, and then you train on those. But it's this self-reinforcing process. And this is also one reason why reinforcement learning is so difficult, uh, because of this bootstrap problem. we so we we want to go on an intellectual
0: journey so we'll go to the bootstrap very very shortly but yep. um but f- first of all everyone at home you should read this paper general intelligence re- uh, requires rethinking exploration so you you spoke uh, of generalizing the notion of exploration um to other settings like supervised learning and, and you argued that such a generalized notion of exploration is required for creating practical systems that perform open-ended learning which is to say systems that Um, can automatically, continually learn meaningful and novel tasks. Now, um, you said some very interesting things, actually. So uh, you said that a hallmark of intelligence is a capacity to explore. And you gave the example of animals exploring their their surroundings for food and shelter. And you said that exploration is coded in the very fabric of life, in the form of genetic mutations that wander the space of uh, phenotypes, some of which may improve the organism's chance to survive and reproduce. Uh, through exploration, the explorer acquires not just information about a specific task or environment in isolation, but information in relation to previous experiences informing the development of more generally useful behaviours that might be strategies for searching for rewarding states in similar environments. So um, I also want to read another bit from your paper. So you said, still, such information acquisition is not purely driven by the explorer. It's also determined by the, learn- uh, the learning opportunities afforded by the environment, mm-hmm. a static environment. Presenting a fixed challenge that the agent can already solve offers nothing to learn. Similarly, a variable environment for which the agent uh, agent has already learned to explore optimally to find the solution offers no potential for learning new behaviours. Conversely, an environment presenting challenges far exceeding the capabilities of the agent is unlikely to provide sufficiently informative experiences for the agent to learn. So exploration, you said, should seek information most useful for the agent to become more general and and uh, you know adept in future decision making um situations so you know what philosophically
1: like what what is what is the take on on exploration I view exploration as um, as coinciding with an agent's ability to also influence the environment hmm. and so in many ways uh, if you basically if you are an agent that can fully explore, like humans can fully, uh, we believe we can fully explore the universe. And in order to be able to do this, it implies that we have the capacity, the capabilities to, to essentially, um, control the universe to some extent, because it, it assumes that we're able to, um, actually take actions that influence the state of the world. In a way that unlocks further opportunities for us to learn um if you are if we were not able to do that then we would not be able to advance uh technological development and we would not be able to um eventually explore the stars right and because we would basically be stuck on earth um, exploiting existing uh, technologies without being able to um, expand the technological tree and so exploration fully coincides in my view with the ability to manipulate the environment to manipulate um to basically devise uh new capabilities to learn new capabilities use that to manipulate the environment uh to further unlock uh additional uh opportunities for exploration for learning Mm -hmm. um and so from this point of view i view exploration as a very fundamental process for um for for basically developing more general forms of intelligence because you you can view this as a proxy now of how intelligent a system is based on how much it's able to explore the environment. If you have an agent that can explore all kinds of dynamics, discover all kinds of dynamics inside of an environment that it's embedded within, that agent must be quite intelligent because it's able to figure out how to, for example, if it's in your apartment, it means that it's able to figure out how to open all the doors, how to open, you know, the cupboards, how to essentially discover all the different details that are in that space. So that implies it's learned skills that can manipulate many parts of the environment. Yes. In con- Yeah. In con- Yeah, sir. Go ahead. Go, go for it. I was just saying, in contrast, if you were only able to do a limited set of uh, tasks, you wouldn't be able to fully explore like the apartment, you wouldn't be able to fully explore the environment. Uh, like if you were a Roomba, you could only walk around, you could only, you only have limited capabilities. You can only um, move around like a planner surface in the environment. Uh, so you wouldn't be able to explore anything that's essentially higher than the floor, right? As a very toy example. And so if you were to have, if you had some AI that could fully explore the apartment, it must have like additional capabilities. So
0: there's something really deep here that I want to explore. You know, there's there's searching and there's learning. And searching what? Searching through an environment and searching and learning are closely related to intelligence, but you can kind of deduce from what I just said, that the environment is strongly linked to intelligence. Yes. So it's, it's almost like without the environment, there is no intelligence. And I'm very interested in this idea of, of an activism, the environment affords mm-hmm. actions, and, and in a sense, the environment is a representation. Yep. So so do you do you think there's
1: something very deeply linked between the environment and intelligence? Yeah, 100%. Um, so, uh... I would go as far to say it's, um, yeah, it's an essential component of intelligence. It's hard to separate intelligence from the environment. Um, and so a lot of the algorithms that I've focused my time on developing in the last few years, uh, essentially are in a class. They essentially all take a similar high level shape where you have this teacher and student and the teacher is essentially devising the environment for the student to master. And so it is essentially this, um, it is this uh, symbiotic process. It's this co-evolutionary process between um, the environment and the student that's trying to master the environment. Hmm. And so um, if you think about it uh, at a higher level, like as humans, we we also design our environments and we can augment our intelligence by designing our environments. At the same time, we also will sometimes specifically um, push ourselves towards environments or settings, problem domains, where we find those more, most challenging. And a lot of science is this, where we basically want to devise specific, we want to enter specific experimental setups, we want to set, enter specific domains of the world where we know very little about. And those are, that's where the most um, informative science happens. And so as agents, as learning agents, we are actually shaping our environments to collect observations to maximize our learning potential. Um, and this is this is how we advance in terms of uh, our collective knowledge hmm. and similarly this is one inspiration for like a lot of these algorithms where we could have uh, the system where essentially one component the teacher is constantly challenging the student it's constantly pushing the student uh, to explore and try to learn to exploit the most challenging configurations of the environments um of course we look and we, we study this in a pretty limited, as of now, uh, environment spaces, sets of design spaces for the environment. Like we look at two-dimensional mazes, we've looked at a two-dimensional bipedal walker environment uh, with different challenging landscapes. Uh, so the space of possible environments that we've looked at for these kinds of um, these kinds of co-evolutionary student and environment algorithms uh, is quite limited. Um, yeah. But I think the sort of positive empirical results we've so far found, uh, I think that further motivates us into thinking that this is something that can, this general intuition is something that can be algorithmatized into these automatic curriculum learning methods. So yeah, so
0: many interesting things there. Later on, we'll go deeper into the point of people think reinforcement learning is quite an open-ended process, but the data that we use to train them, maybe it's from a simulator. Typically, it's a computer program that someone's written and there's a few um, knobs and levers on there. But yeah. but it's it's actually very truncated in terms of the, the number of environments you can generate, which by extension means that any intelligence derivable from those systems is limited. Um, but I promise not to get too philosophical because everyone tells me I get too philosophical to the point of being ridiculous. And I, I'm sorry that I do that. But um, the only fly in the ointment and we'll talk about intelligence properly in, in a minute, but Shane Leg does have a definition which jives with what you just said about being able to do lots of tasks in different environments. But um, having spoken to people like Noam Chomsky, um, he's he, well, he basically he argues against empiricism, which is this idea that yeah. given observational data, you can you know deduce mm-hmm. um, abstract knowledge. And what I mean by abstract knowledge is knowledge which is not grounded in the real world, yeah so you know like platonic ideas for example and so could you argue that there there is certain types of knowledge which you can't derive
1: from an environment I think this is a I think this is sort of the trillion dollar question right now in the land of large language models um like we basically see very interesting phenomena here where so at a high level and I think a lot of um like I think people like Chomsky would would argue this this view where these large models are just trained on data that's found on the internet. And so you're basically just fitting this distribution. And so how could it ever learn something that's abstract and not encoded in that data directly? How could it learn something um, like theories about the world? Um, but I think what's interesting is that what we're finding is that a lot of these really impressive abilities that are being exhibited by the large language models um, can actually be classified as a form of emergent behavior. Mm -hmm. And so what's really interesting is that if you look at different different types of um, collective intelligences, like um, if you look at fish schooling patterns, or if you look at the way birds flock, the way starlings flock, a lot of these really complex high-level swarm-level behaviors actually emerge from very simple local interactions. So you can actually have Simulations of starlings or like of fish schools um, that reproduce very complex behavior. But if you look at the actual code, it's actually based on very simple sets of uh, local rules. If my neighbor is doing X, Y, or Z, I will do this in response. And you can reproduce these really amazing patterns at a global level. And similar things happen in like the game of life, where obviously you have very simple rules and you can emerge all kinds of patterns. Um, And in fact, uh, it's been proven that like Game of Life is Turing complete. And so um, what is really interesting about the language model, how this connects back to language models is that we have a very simple local rule, which is drain training, which is essentially we want to predict a very local phenomenon, which is we want to predict the next token inside of the text. But um, then if you step back and you look at the amazing capabilities that just simply minimizing Your loss function for predicting the next token, um, you see that it's actually learning much more sophisticated behaviors. And I think what is happening is that when you train these models to minimize the simple loss function that's based on a very local behavior, which is predicting the next token, um, you again get these amazing global properties, which are things where it seems to exhibit a world model of the world that's essentially uh, embodied by this text. And so I kind of view this as a very open question in the field right now, which is to what extent does this local, does this very local rule that we're trying to optimize for predicting the next token, allow for these more global, uh, more abstract theories of the world to emerge within, um, within the language model, within these large neural models. Um, and I think that's, um, that's, yeah, that's just an open question in my view, but I think there's a lot of uh, mounting evidence that it is learning Um, to some degree, these more abstract concepts all in service to minimize this loss and basically coming out as a form of emergent behavior. Exactly. And um, first of all,
0: folks at home, if you haven't watched our episode on emergence, you have to watch it. Um, Yeah, Sabine Hossenfelder wrote a really interesting paper called The Case for Strong Emergence. And she um, explained it in a way which I thought was wonderful. So essentially, um, and, and she explained a concept in terms of a physical theory and a physical theory is emergent. If there exists a more fundamental theory, which is traceable mm. and, uh, and by, by, more fundamental, I mean a higher resolution theory. So we think of, um, abstractions as being fundamental because it's inconceivable to us how there could be a more high resolution, uh, theory that could produce them, but maybe it's possible in the case of large language models, that there is a theoretical path to these abstractions. And uh, we spoke to Stephen Wolfram, Wolfram the other day, and and he has this concept of computational irreducibility as well, which means that you know the only way to traverse between the theories is by performing this kind of repetitive um, uh, computation. But um, yeah, so the jury's out on that one. But th- there is a fundamental dichotomy in how we think about intelligence between people like Shane Legg who think intelligence is the environment or or the the, the set of environments, mm-hmm. and people who think that. Um, there's something very fundamental about not only the abstractions, but the ability to form new ones. Mm -hmm. But um, I I wanted to um, pick up on something. So I've long thought that there's something fundamental about exploration or even search for that matter. And I I debated some AGI uh, maximalists at NeurIPS. They just published the interview yesterday. And, um, they are convinced that super intelligence is nearly here. And they cite things like, Oh, you know, when GPT five gets internet access and autonomy to write and execute its own programs, all sorts of stuff will happen. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I think even with GPT four, we're going to see some really interesting applications now. Like I thought of, um, security. Mm. Imagine if the language model was, um, downloading security bulletins and patching your system for you and stuff like that. Mm. So we've already got some kind of like, you know, recursive thing, but, but, um, I, d- I don't think that there's going to be this this explosion. And um, I often argue that intentionality is important. So after reading Soul, he said humans have intentionality. Mm. And that's a similar concept to agency, creativity, free will, or whatever. But I think the broader intuition is actually after reading Kenneth Stanley's book, that um, what I mean is open-endedness and mm. search, right? Because that, that's basically what intentionality is. It's about I've got all of these things I can do. And we, we manage to magically select the right thing to do and there's something serendipitous, creative, interesting, information accumulation, call it what you want. So, um, so anyway, th- there's this learning problem and the search problem. And I think the two are entangled. But I also think part of it is how we perceive complex systems. So we anthropomorphize human intelligence. But mm-hmm. when we zoom out and look at evolution, we think of it as a search problem. It, it, look, it resembles a search problem uh, to us. So the, the space and the time of where we draw the boundaries around the artifacts um, influence how we view them. And obviously, Kenneth Stanley, you know, massively influenced me because he spoke of um, an open-ended system as being something which finds new problems and their solutions and accumulates information dynamically, something mm-hmm. which is divergent, not convergent. So coming back to this intelligence explosion thing, mm-hmm. it kind of seems to me that even if there was like a GPT-10, yeah and they prompted it and it was like reflexively creating programs or whatever, it would converge. There's asymptotes everywhere, right? Because it's not an open-ended process. And even if it was computing some open-ended process on the internet, it would surely converge.
1: That's an interesting question because I think you can also view a world where we have access to models like GPT, especially self, if they have different methods. There's lots of uh, different investigations happening right now into how these models can also self-improve, uh, which we could talk about. But also, um, if you live in a world with these self-improving language models, um, I think it really depends on how quickly we're training these things. Because I think if you train the language model, um, and it learns very fast on all the data in the world, then it'll just learn the distribution of data in the world. And it'll asymptote, It'll because we don't have more data to, to feed it. Um, but you can also view like longer term hor- time horizon, where essentially our civilizations like co- we're basically co-evolving now with these large language models, and humans are open-ended, um, and we do create um, like we can basically invent new technologies, we invent new problems, we invent new culture, and all these things mixed together to basically invent further new things, and we're this constant iterative process that generates novelty, um, and I think that when you have language models embedded in that mix they're just yet another cultural artifact that we've created and i think what that can do is it can actually accelerate how quickly we we ourselves innovate our culture and so uh if anything i think we know that we as a civilization will asymptote or we hope we won't um uh, and so as long as humans don't asymptote in terms of like the novelty and innovations that we produce then I think language models won't either because I think in many ways they're just an accelerant on top of the existing open-endedness that humans already exhibit. Um, I think a very interesting question, related, separate, I think, is whether language models themselves could one day become open-ended, largely independent of humans. Because there are some projections I read recently that say that I think the estimate was around 2026 where um, some researchers estimated that language models would run out of novel training data. And so in terms of the pace of organic growth of human-generated data and how quickly we're feeding this data into language models, um, there is some point where these two lines will cross and basically will run out of training data. And so at that point, uh, I think that's also a very interesting question. Um, If it's true that we're on track for that to happen, I think that's very interesting. Um, And that becomes a more relevant question, which is can these language models themselves self-improve in an open-ended way? Um, yes. Which is also opens a different can of worms because if these things are improving in themselves, is that generating open ended solutions and behaviors that also are useful to humans, uh, to to human use cases? I mean, you, you said
0: something very interesting there, which is that evolution—it's the process which is intelligent. That's what Kenneth Stanley would say. Actually, François Chollet says the same thing. It's the process of, of meta learning and. Mm-hmm when you look at we you know we produce language and we've compiled all of the world's knowledge into various repositories and that that knowledge is now sclerotic it's static it's not changing anymore mm-hmm. and the remarkable thing is we've encoded all of these abstractions and terms and things in there we've trained a language mo- a language model on it yeah. and and it's giving us this this call it mimicry call it a trick, call it what you want it appears very intelligent mm. but but the real intelligence is the process which created it. Yeah. And then you spoke about, well, yes, language models and AIs will be enmeshed in our society. It's intelligence 3.0. But there's this fundamental philosophical question, if like good, you know, the recursive super guy, or even with, with Godel machines, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people make this assumption that when you have this reflexivity that you'll just get this runaway super intelligence. But surely there would still be asymptotes everywhere.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's possible. I mean, I think the really interesting question is whether. Yeah, I think that is the interesting question whether it does asymptote. Um, I think it's unclear. Like, if you have a system like this, that's basically, uh, if you if you view the essentially the language model as eventually training on its own data, uh, because that's what would end up happening, right? Like, if we run out of data. The language model will basically end up training on largely its own outputs Mm -hmm. uh, or variations thereof and um, and so you end up with a a sort of more recursive training loop where basically you're training on your own outputs and a lot of the more I would say classify them as like exploration methods within supervised learning like these self-improving methodologies for training language models where you have the language model generate additional data by cleverly prompting it for like generating its own tasks. like There's a self-instruct paper where they essentially devise prompts to uh, have the language model generate additional tasks of where you have an input, some parameter for the task input, and then some output for that parameterized task. And basically, you can basically generate lots of these, further train the language model on these self-generated synthetic tasks, and show that it tends to improve performance on different benchmarks. Hmm. Um, and um, there's quite a few. There's another recent paper from Meta research, uh, Meta AI, Uh, called Toolformer, which does a similar pattern where essentially you have the language model, you essentially prompt the language model to generate instances where it accesses an external API. Mm. And basically you have a way to filter for successful instances of those uh, where essentially the API call that it generates is useful for reducing its loss. And if that is the case, then you can use that as additional training examples uh, to further improve the model. And in effect, you have a model that's taught itself how to use these tools, these APIs, and so you will have to end up entering this regime where we use language models to essentially explore the space of data that they can then further train on, and so I think that um, a lot, a lot of this will, I imagine that in the limit, like if you had infinite compute and infinite time, you would probably asymptote because the language model is only trained on like a fixed data set. Ultimately, at up to every any point in time, that model is trained on ultimately a finite data set. Um, and so it's not going to be able to um, it's not going to be able to generate data that's very far outside of that data set, and so I think what would happen is that you it might end up plateauing, but I think that plateau reaching that plateau might take a very long time. Yeah, I
0: mean, let let me push back just a tiny bit. So. Back in the olden days of GANs, people used to say to me, Oh, I'm I'm going to use the GAN to generate data and then I'm going to fine tune the GAN mm-hmm. on the data I generated. And that to me always seemed a little bit questionable because, yeah. you know, if you think about it, the the neural network, it, it learns an approximation of the data manifold. And all you're doing is is you're kind of more dense you're, you're densifying that approximation of the manifold. And I think of what we're talking about intelligence is, is actually a truly creative process. So mm-hmm. When we form analogies, we're selecting a meta-relation between the data which doesn't exist. So we're creating new information. Yeah. And it feels to me that when you're sampling a language model, you're not creating any new information. Now, people yeah. argue about this. They argue the toss. They say, no, they are extra By the way, I think the word extrapolation is very unhelpful these days. But, yeah. you know, they argue that you are creating new information. But
1: are they creating new information? So all of these methods where the language model generates its own training data... One of the key aspects is actually still there's a layer of feedback, right? That's provided because it, it'll generate a lot of garbage as well, and a lot of these message uh, these methods hinge on access to some feedback signal that basically allows you to filter for the good generated um, self-generated data from the garbage, and that feedback is essentially uh, external to the system. That feedback is actually uh, human provided. That's usually provided by a human. Um, and so, so I would go as far to say we actually don't have methods uh, where the language model can generate its own data because it's also, it ties back sort of to um, this observation about open endedness that um, like Ken Stanley and Joe Lehman and uh, Lisa Soros have made in the past, which is that open endedness is often, uh, open endedness in the general sense is arbitrary. Mm-hmm. There's a subjectivity to open endedness. Yeah. Um, If I want a language model that just generates open-ended data to train on, I could just have it enumerate all the numbers in the world, uh, all the numbers that can exist, which is infinity, and that's always going to be open-ended. If I just have a linear function, uh, f of x equals x, that's open-ended because if I just increase x, it'll just keep giving me new numbers. Has to be interesting. Yes, and so you need something. You need you need a better defined notion of open-endedness, and that's often subjective. What does it mean to be meaningfully novel? Uh, compared to the past. Hmm. Um, I do tend to like this uh, notion. Oh, so I guess to finish that thought, essentially uh, it's it's generally ill-defined what it means to generate uh, open-ended data in this sense. And so it's not clear to me whether any existing methods actually can leverage a language model to generate uh, a truly open-ended, um, truly open-ended uh, data or like to have a system that's truly open-ended that leverages uh, a large language model. Um, Yeah, because it it seems like most methods out there right now that use uh, language models to self-improve hinge on having access to this human feedback signal, uh, which is essentially very domain-specific actually, Hmm. and tends to, uh, I think that ultimately limits the open-endedness of these systems. Um, One promising direction that I believe can both ground open-endedness in a very meaningful sense of the term as well as lead to practical improvements in how robust in general these models are would be to have um, essentially an open-endedness criterion that's based on an openness criterion that's essentially based on uh, generating new tasks for which the language model is bad at performing. Um, But this runs into a related problem which is that you can again generate meaningless tasks. You can generate lots of like sort of uh, noise tasks where the input and output are not meaningful. Hmm. They're not semantically grounded in anything that humans care about, but that maybe your current checkpoint of your language model is bad at solving. And so um, this is again sort of tracing back to the same core issue, which is just how do you generate meaningful novelty? And again, to ground that notion, we would it seems we would have to introduce some human judge again in terms of actually defining what constitutes meaningful. Yeah, I, I know. And um, So
0: Stanley spoke about this gradient of interestingness. And one thing we all agree on, even Noam Chomsky agrees on, is that humans have a really um, interesting form of subjectivity in, in in terms of choosing things to do. And it's not random. It's definitely not random. But I was listening to the interview with Lex Friedman and Sam Altman last night, and and they were talking a little bit about when we have language models in society could they become a kind of open-ended process? Now, I know we just spoke about language models are frozen, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't learn anything new. And you can think of this in two ways. Now, you've said that the, the problem with supervised learning is that the environment they are used in is non-stationary, which means it's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we spoke to Wolfram last week, he said, well, you know, now you can you can plug it in and it can just learn the Wolfram language. It can learn any formal language. Mm-hmm. There was that Sparks of um, AI, AGI paper with the Microsoft research people, and they said GPT-4 developed this capability where it can now, just with minimal prompting, it can use tools and it can learn any formal language. So one argument is, oh, it's job done, guys. We never need to train this thing ever again. And another argument is, oh, humans can use it creatively. Humans have agency and autonomy, so they can just continue to use this thing, and, and it will adapt, but presumably it will adapt within clear boundaries.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, these open AI plugins and the, like basically external tool use, um, like Toolformer does this as well. Um, I think that is definitely going to be key for a lot of um, improvements to large language models, both from like a functional point of view, uh, from a reliability point of view, because instead of having to rely on the language model, being able to do two plus two, uh, you basically plug that into a calculator and you guarantee success uh, in terms of the outcome. Um, and it also reduces the need to basically like have giant language models because you can actually drastically reduce the number of parameters needed to match um, performance in different tasks as long as you have the right tool. As long it, So you just has to recognize which tool to use, identify the right tool to use rather than uh, perform the functions of that tool. And so you can have miniaturized language models that probably fit and run fast on your phone by leveraging some of these ideas. Um, so that brings me to this idea, I think, that um, you... When you have language models embedded in society, like I think that you can have open-ended systems because it's going to be embedded uh, as a as a cultural artifact with humans, hmm. and humans are just going to leverage it to accelerate what they already do, which is already open-ended, which is basically evolve culture, evolve technology, um, evolve science, and so I think um, there's no question in my mind that it would accelerate how open-ended we are as just a civilization. Um, the other, but then going back again to this other sort of uh, thread is, what about how open ended are these systems by themselves? And I think that's that's closer to I think the original like, I mean, I think it's an interesting question to study AI systems in isolation, which is can I basically invent uh, artificial intelligence in like the purest sense of the term, which is like can I build a system that by itself can recapitulate lots of the interesting emergent behaviors that humans have that we call intelligence. Um, Things that exhibit, you know, things things like reasoning, things like being able to invent scientific theories, things that exhibit more open-ended behavior by themselves. Um, uh, And then, like, there's a separate question, which is, when we practically deploy these things, are they, how intelligent are they when they're embedded within, like, a larger Existing civilization, an existing world where there's lots of other technologies that they can then also latch onto and leverage, um, just like humans. Hmm. And I think it's an it's an interesting question. Um, and it's at a meta level, I think it's also interesting, like which one of these is more important to focus on. And I think it's actually probably the latter that's more important, just because, like, sort of to echo a previous point we were discussing in the conversation, um, intelligence is always a function of the environment. Hmm. And so, a lot of like sort of the traditional, I think, the AI approach to studying these problems has been, what if we build a system that, you know, completely by itself can exhibit all kinds of intelligence? Like what's needed to do that? When in reality, it seems that um intelligences have all evolved uh, in tandem with other participants in the environment. Hmm. There's always this symbiotic, these symbiotic relationships between, um, individuals in their environment, other individuals within that environment, and so I do think you see the same thing where language models embedded in the world, interacting with other intelligent uh, participants like human users, they end up becoming more intelligent as well because you can basically just you can just uh, co-adapt and you can leverage like the the, sh- the shared capabilities within that ecosystem. Um, but then it's also interesting perhaps more from like an A-life or traditional AI type of a uh, bottom-up, purely bottom-up in isolation approach, which is like, can you build an AI system or an AGI system that essentially becomes AGI just purely in isolation? Um, and that that I think we're just very far away from, and I think it's not even within the realm really of like current methods, uh, just because if you think about it, like a large language model is by definition already trained on just terabytes of human data. So already like out of the gates that's not really something that you could even argue is something that's like an AGI that just you know has has become an AGI purely from from us discovering some maybe core secret of the universe that leads to an AGI in isolation everything yeah. is dependent on existing knowledge that's generated by existing intelligent participants. So,
0: so that's really interesting. And, and again, it comes back to this idea of computational irreducibility. So I'm, I'm, i an emergentist. I believe that you, you could have a simulation of the universe and, um, just like with a fast four cellular automata, if you, you know, run for enough steps, intelligence could emerge from that. And what's really interesting is that with current large language models, we are basically stealing, you, you know um, when you dig coal out of the ground or you get oil out of the ground, mm-hmm. um, it's charged up all of this energy from millions of years of sun exposure and animals dying and, and so on. And, and in a way, that's what we've done with large language models. We've used the universe as a computer yeah. and it's done all of this computation and we're kind of like harvesting it and we're stealing the the intelligence, which yeah. is quite interesting. But um, when, I, when I spoke with Sam, sorry, I didn't speak with Sam Altman, when I listened to Lex interview Sam Altman, he was talking about. Um, I actually, I was surprised. He was being quite, um, you know, straightforward about GPT-4. He said he didn't think it was a true artificial general intelligence. And Lex said, "Why not?" And he said, "Well, um, when we have a system that can actually produce new scientific theories and really kind of change the world, that then it would be AGI." So I thought he was actually a little bit downbeat. He said he was disappointed that GPT-4 wasn't wasn't better. But um, I want to talk a little bit about RLHF. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spoke about that before we started recording. And that has a very interesting effect on on language models. So it's not so much it changes their capabilities, but it, it creates an interface for us to use. But in, in the most abstract um, sense, how do you understand RLHF?
1: Yeah, so I I think, um, so in in popular culture now, there's actually quite a good meme that explains it. Um, I think it kind of carries the spirit of it, which is this, uh, Shogith meme that you've probably seen, Mm. uh, where, uh, the idea is that like the base model that's just trained to model P of X, the distribution over internet text, uh, that's this very sort of chaotic being that, you know, has all the, you don't, it's, it's, uh, it's this very like enormous being that essentially has modeled the whole internet of text. And so there's lots of, um, crevices within that distribution and there's both good and bad. There's, um... there's a lot of probably hate speech, but then also lots of very brilliant content as well. Um, and so that's kind of what you get if you just model the whole internet as a distribution and using next token prediction on these large models. Um, and then, of course, the problem becomes if I ask this model to essentially perform a task by essentially providing it a prompt, like a, a prefix into a text that I want it to complete, then it's, it can be difficult to anticipate how it's going to complete it. Like, if I ask it um, a question, uh, about calculus is it going to complete it as a professor of cal- uh, of math or is it going to complete it by giving me a response from a random you know like commenter on 4chan or like a reddit post and you might get wildly different qualities of responses based on that um, in reality um it's sort of this like giant mass of just people that it's modeled and so it's like multiple personalities times a billion people on the internet that's what it's modeling And so then this meme basically says, okay, well, RLHF is basically sticking essentially like a smiley face on top of this, Mm -hmm. where it's essentially giving you, um, it's basically hiding this mess. It's hiding the fact that it's, you know, this chaotic, like, population of text that it's modeled. And instead, uh, it's going to provide you with a a very friendly interface into specific parts of that uh, mass of people it's modeling. And the way it's doing that is it's basically training, it's fine tuning the model on a reward signal that's, mm-hmm. um, that itself is learned from uh, human preference data. So basically, they collect human feedback data from uh, different generations of the language model, and they essentially use that to train another model that outputs a feedback signal for whether given an input, how good is an output. So it's modeling human preferences that's um, empirically collected. Um, and then you use that as a reward signal to fine-tune the predictions, the generations of your language model. So treating the language model now in the fine-tuning phase as a reinforcement learning policy. So like basically, given what I've generated thus far, like uh, and the prompt, what should I? What is the next token I should predict? And so treating this as a reinforcement learning problem, uh, where the reward signal is this human preference model. Mm-hmm. And so um, what that's doing is it's essentially saying you started with P of X, which is modeling the distribution of internet text. And now we're going to use RL, where we're basically going to start to introduce bias into this distribution. Um, So what what is interesting about this is that when you train a typical language model, um, you're basically training it with something like a cross entropy loss. And a cross entropy loss is equivalent to um, a divergence metric between two distributions. Mm -hmm. And so when you do this, um, you're essentially, you know, if you had tons of Uh, computation, and when the process converges, you should expect that your model is essentially learning to model. It's minimizing the distributional divergence, this distance between distributions, uh, between its learned distribution over text and the training data distribution over text. And so basically, when this process converges, when you minimize this loss, it should actually be matching the distribution of text on the internet. What reinforcement learning does is almost the opposite of this. Reinforcement learning is not doing distribution matching. Reinforcement learning is mode seeking. Um, So if you had some data where you say, um, I have maybe 51% of a positive, I have 51% uh, of an example where the right answer is A and uh, 49% where the right answer is B, but I can't tell ahead of time like which, which answer it should be because maybe the two inputs are aliased. Then reinforcement learning is going to if you keep training the policy to maximize the reward, it's going to always choose the first answer because it's got a slight bias in the distribution. But by always choosing it, you're going to maximize your reward in expectation. That's what it's doing. So, reinforcement learning is mode seeking. And so, when you apply this on top of um, a P of X that you've learned to just dist- like that's distribution matching internet text, uh, you're essentially introducing these like mode seeking biases into your model. And so, it's going to tend to the, the generations are going to tend to hone in more, they're going to tend to collapse more towards the types of outputs, the part of the, the, the domain of language where human preferences have assigned, learned human preference has assigned a higher reward. And so what you're doing is you're losing a lot of the diversity of P of X. So you're losing a lot of diversity in exchange for perhaps more reliable generations that take you more into the parts of the distribution, um, the original distribution that had more, you know, higher quality answers. So maybe now if it's tuned to give me good answers on math questions, now if I ask it a calculus question, it'll tend to favor those those uh, completions that are modeling the outputs of a college professor of math rather than, you know, someone who's like asking the same question on Reddit and saying, help, I don't know how to do this problem.
0: Yes, yes. So what could possibly go wrong? Um, yeah, as, as you say, so a language model, it's Um, learning this conditional probability distribution conditioned on a sequence of tokens. What's the next token? And that probability distribution has loads of modes. It's like this big hilly landscape. And some of the modes are, you know, um, 4chan. Some of the modes are Stanford university. And we want to kind of like snip out all of the bad ones and all of the ones that we like, we, we want to remain now, I guess I wanted your intuition on how this
1: pruning, can we call it a pruning process,
0: how that affects both the capability and the bias.
1: Yeah, so I think it essentially improves um, how reliable the uh, answers are by introducing a bias. So you're biasing the model to generate um, completions that were favored by humans in the preference, uh, in the, when you collected the preference data. And so if you assume the preference model that it's used to train on is a, is a proper reflection of the human preferences, then it is biasing the model towards those that whatever human participants used preferred. And so that itself also introduces bias because it's like yep. the specific humans that are providing their value um, assignments to the uh, completed answers, they're, you're essentially distilling their reward, like you're distilling their preferences. And so the actual humans, the choice of humans for collecting the preferences is very important. Um, because you're ultimately the model is going to exhibit those values as well. And uh, this is at the cost of the diversity of the generations that you can you can sample because uh, rather than sampling lots of different possible paths, where again, like from the why greatness cannot be planned perspective, right that's quite that's quite like useful sometimes because maybe, by generating something that's unlikely under a fine-tuned model it's actually acting as like a prefix stepping stone to like a better answer right that just that somehow was um, glanced over within the preference function that you learned Um, you end up generating uh, less diversity and so you end up going towards maybe answers that are good but maybe there's better answers or there's more interesting answers um, that would otherwise be generated to touch on a couple of things. I mean, even before
0: we do RLH chef, when you look at the um, the probability distribution, it's it's kind of it's it's exponentially distributed. So it's still likely to say the next word is this and this and much less likely to be something else. But as you say, from a open ended perspective, we are making it far more convergent. And you could argue yeah. that's a form of robustification. But then when the humans give their preferences, you know we were talking about good parts law earlier. That's a proxy. So we have benchmarks like Big Bench. We have um, mm-hmm. this human over there said it looked like a good output. Yep. And what what's the right thing to do? I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's, there's what's right from yep. an alignment point of view. So there's morality and ethics. There's being able to perform well on mathematics challenges. And there's this human over there thought it was a good thing to do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the use case. Uh, so this is kind of tying back to the industry slant, because I think that RLHF in some, it does make a lot of sense. If you want your language model to essentially be a Google replacement, if you want it to be a search engine, mm. then it makes a lot of sense to bias it towards um, a subset of the distribution that corresponds to like good answers to search queries. Um, but this is going to like an example of when this would be in more perhaps direct opposition to a use case to another use case would be if you want to use a language model um, as a creative writing assistant right? If I want to use the language model to help me generate new creative art in the form of a novel or a short story or poetry, um, by using RLHF, you're reducing the diversity of the outputs because you're basically saying, I'm going to play it safe rather than uh, play the wild card and get more interesting content. But when you're an author, when you want to actually create new cultural content that's interesting, you often want to play the wild card. You want to Explore the space of ideas. You want to, and sometimes that requires going through stepping stones of ideas that maybe are pretty suboptimal or maybe controversial or offensive. Um, but that's all required to get to somewhere better, which is maybe somewhere where you can't get if you were just following the uh, RL RLHF uh, fine-tuned trajectories.
0: Yes, and and that's why lots of um, creative people, I think I, I read on Less Wrong, they prefer using the original Da Vinci three because mm. they thought that the command models were less creative but um here's something interesting i mean as an open-ended person you think open-endedness in of itself is intelligent so you would argue that
1: gpt4 is less intelligent it's less cre- i think it seems that it would be less creative if it were i well i don't know too much about gpt4 uh in terms of the capabilities but like in terms of the 3.5 like chat gpt model mm-hmm. it does seem like it's uh, it, it could be one risk would be that it's less creative if it's RL fine-tuned, mm. it might be less creative at generating things that are more off the off the beaten path.
0: Yes. But I mean, I, I guess um, we can distinguish um, crystallized intelligence from intelligence as a process. So mm-hmm. if you're one of these AGI, it's going to take over the world type people. Yep. Well, um, only when it's in a process enmeshed in society. And because it would produce demonstrably a more convergent process, then it must surely be less, not more intelligent. But... Um, yeah, very interesting. Okay, well, let's let's move on a little bit. So um, you spoke about the shortcomings of supervised learning. And uh, you said that when we, you know, when we learn from finite offline data sets, they have two shortcomings, incompleteness. So the set of all facts about the world is actually infinite, and stationarity. All such data sets are by definition fixed, you said. And I also want to introduce this concept of inconsistency, mm. which is this idea that sometimes when you mix data together into a monolithic and entangled representation, it might help the headline metrics, but harm the specifics. And this is about this notion that well, model bias is all about models learn the head of the distribution, they don't learn all of the entropy on on the long tail. So um, yeah, tell me about the shortcomings of supervised learning.
1: Yeah, so this, it's interesting about the uh, inconsistency Uh, notion that you're talking about. So this is kind of, this is also related to the previous discussion around um, just like the purely uh, distribution matching GPT, where you basically train on internet text without fine tuning. And then there's the fine tuned version. Um, Seems that the fine tuned version would be a lot, you would hope that it's more consistent in the answers Mm -hmm. because you would assume that human participants uh, prefer consistent answers to their math questions or to the programming questions. Um, While if you model the full text, you might have Model programs with bugs in them, and so you would have like basically inconsistent solutions to the same problems that you ask of it. Um, And so, yeah, so I think that is interesting. But I think this is also the inconsistency is also interesting as an idea. I think to leverage in generating synthetic data, Um, and I think this is starting to be a pattern you see in some of the self-improving methods you see with language models, Mm -hmm. where basically you can essentially have a language model generate lots of. like one strategy could be to have the language model generate lots of potential solutions uh, and then basically choose ones that are more consistent with potentially other generations that it's made in the past. Um, and so that could be like a filtering criterion for outputs of a language model. Mm-hmm. Um, and so consistency could be a really good bias in terms of, um, in terms of uh, generating solutions for certain domains where there's like a clear notion of success. Um, but then consistency, you might actually want inconsistency. In a lot of ways, because if you were to model, for example, like political leanings, or if you were to model stuff like, oh, I want to have a language model, write an op ed piece about, you know, US politics, you probably you th- that's by definition, um, a, a subjective area that's going to have a lot of inconsistencies in terms of viewpoints. Um, and so I think in that case, it could be actually a feature, not a bug for the language model to be inconsistent. Um, and a lot of things like if, if you're in the objective realm. Like the laws of physics are consistent, and like a lot, like all the all the scientific laws and like uh, modeling the world, having a physical world model, all these things will be consistent. And that, and like if you have a language model force itself to be self-consistent, you're going to do a better job at modeling these things. But uh, what makes I think what makes a lot of um, the most difficult problems uh, in life is actually just like these things that happen at a more abstract realm where you have these disagreements because people have different values, and that makes their behaviors um, inconsistent. And so you want to have, I think if you want to solve these like higher order societal problems, you're probably going to need a language model that can actually uh, sort of double down on being inconsistent. And actually, I think we'll need to devise different ways of essentially exploring that inconsistency. um, And yeah, and basically make use of language models that can model distributions of text that are inconsistent.
0: Yeah. And again, there's two ways of thinking about it. So you can argue that language models learn emergent consistency from inconsistency, but you could also argue, as Sarah Hooker does, that there's some fundamental model bias that kind of prevents you from learning a lot of the new I mean, actually, like what what I was when I was talking with Joel Lemon, um, so much about the subjective experience is not representable and not learned by language models. Some of it is. <clears throat> but there's there's always this notion that because I think you would lean to using open-ended approaches to start capturing some of this rich diversity. But I wanted to talk about um, uh, generality, which is what you spoke to in your paper, and and also intelligence, which I think of as being synonymous. Others don't. Um, But you said the subject of generality in intelligence is a loaded concept, to say the least. General um, uh, definitions uh, of intelligence tend to be vague, incomputable. Uh, Even my friend Cholet's definition is incomputable. Um, unquantifiable in degree. So yeah, you, you spoke to some of the definitional intelligences, and um, uh, Cholet's definition of, of intelligence is basically the ability to produce abstractions. It, it's a, a meta-learning algorithm which can mm-hmm. um, take information in and you know produce new skill programs dynamically to tasks that you haven't seen before. So you have this developer-aware mm-hmm. generalization. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you actually dig into his definition, there are lots of things which are incomputable, especially when he's looking at the, the, the cross entropy between um, different sets of curricula and stuff like that. But, um, but, but you, you said you've got a definition of generality, which is very interesting, um, a relative ge- uh, definition. So model A is more general than model B relative to a task set T if and only if A performs above a threshold level that of a minimally viable solution in tasks in T than B, while at least uh, matching the performance of B on all of the other tasks in T on which B meets the threshold. So you said general intelligence is not necessarily the end state of any system, but rather a property which can change over time relative to other um, uh, intelligence systems and the specific task domain. So you said you didn't want to address the notion of general intelligence relative to the space of all possible tasks as well defined. It's an orthogonal concern to the to the argument. Now, um, Cholet warned against measuring task-specific skill, which is mm-hmm. what you're leaning to here a little bit. And um, also Shane Legg suffers from the same flaw in that saying that, um, you know, he doesn't have any notion of adapting to new tasks outside the horizon of of the system. So yeah, tell me a little bit about your your me- measure.
1: So, so this this measure is more uh, inspired by this open ended learning setting, where mm-hmm. essentially um, I think there's again lots as a preface, like lots of different uh, competing notions of AGI. I think a lot of them make sense within the context in which they're defined, um, because I think they're each trying to point out like one specific um, characteristic of intelligence that people care about. Um, but one one way that um, we're thinking about open-ended intelligence is just you want a system that like like humans are kind of a model for this where essentially i would say humans are open-ended intelligences in the sense that we can we're constantly innovating our own knowledge and our own capabilities um and essentially we're constantly adapting to like the new challenges that we're presented with mm-hmm. uh in the world and so you ultimately want an intelligence that can uh can both adapt to new challenges and also in itself um, seek out new challenges to improve itself. And so rather than define this notion of a general intelligence, um, my co-authors and I on this paper, we decided to um, focus on a notion of intelligence that we call increasingly general intelligence. And so this is this idea that uh, what we really care about is we want to devise artificially intelligent systems that can by themselves continue to exhibit increasingly Increasing capabilities in terms of what they're able to do Um, so this essentially the way we look at it is can the system essentially exhibit increasing capability in terms of a uh, increasingly larger and larger set of tasks Um, and This allows us to then compare two systems where we can say for a certain space of tasks that we're essentially trying to um, devise an increasingly general intelligence on we can then compare two such instances and say, um, does one of them dominate the other in terms of the uh, in terms of the tasks that it's able to solve? So if neither of them dominate, because maybe there's a um, there's basically like a non-zero um, disjoint set of tasks that they each are better on, then in that case, like you could just say that this is not well defined. Like they're both they're both better in different ways, right? But then if one of them does clearly dominate the other, like it's able to perform better on more tasks within the task space and also at least match the other's performance on the tasks that it can solve, then that's a clear definition of dominating performance within that task space. Um, and that task space doesn't even have to be like the set of all tasks, because I think the what's nice about this IGI definition is that it uh, you can also apply it to like a more limited design space. So even within the maze solving domain, which is like a very simple 2D domain uh, for solving different kinds of block world mazes, um, you can also... You can also apply this definition, like, is the agent learning over time to solve more and more kinds of mazes uh, than another agent, and is it learning uh, such that it it can essentially follow a policy that dominates the performance on any maze compared to another agent? In that case, we could say that it's more generally intelligent within this domain of tasks. And so essentially, I think grounding the notion of general intelligence to a clear task set T. And also having um, a criterion by which you can compare two agents in terms of the general the generality of their abilities, I think that's what makes this measure I think a more practically useful one. And sort of one one sort of mild criticism we we mentioned in the paper about uh, previous definitions um, like this universal measure of intelligence uh, based on like the IC model is that really like. These, these, these models um, of intelligence, of general intelligence, are sort of like starting from the top down. Hmm. They're essentially defining this is what an ideal intelligence looks like ac- according also to a, like, a very specific notion um, of generality that's based on like the universal prior, which is essentially like assigning non-zero probability to all um, essentially MDPs that can exist, all decision-making tasks that you could try to be good at. Um, and it's also weighing each of those tasks based on their Kolmogorov complexity, uh, which is basically the the size of the shortest program that can reproduce like that specific task. Um, and so it's it's already baking in also like additional subjective assumptions. While here it's more just saying uh, it's a bottom up definition of intelligence. Um, and so that allows us to have something that's more I think grounded to a particular algorithm. And we can basically design algorithms to keep trying to gradually increase um, how how qu- the, their ability to uh, become increasingly general. And so essentially, it gives us a more bottom-up definition of general intelligence. So we don't have to start from the top and say it's not generally intelligent if it doesn't match this universal uh, in- definition of intelligence. Um, we can we can basically seek increasingly general systems this way. And we can also shrink the domain if we wanted to. We can say, we just want to have a general system for cleaning your apartment. And basically, it's going to be, um, you know, an agent that can clean any apartment um, within some, you know, constraint of apartment shapes and sizes. Um, But then we can also keep expanding and say, oh, it can also clean malls. It can also clean, you know, roads and then eventually keep increasing the domain.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I share Cholet's concern about, being fixed to a horizon of tasks, but in a sense, similar to the poet paper, actually, you can actually think of environments as being the problems in of itself. And I think that's kind of what Shane Legg's definition goes to. So as long as there's a kind of compatibility between the things that an agent can do in an environment, you can have a diversity of, of environments and think of intelligence as, as arriving from, from, from the environment itself. But um, yeah, okay. We could just talk about the limitations of of reinforcement learning. So yeah, you, you said that reinforcement learning methods remain largely limited to toy simulations or very domain specific applications. And you said some of this is, um, you know, the potential costs, so financial, temporal, environmental, the dangers of real world uh, experience collection. You said that current simulators predominantly mirror the limitations of static finite data sets, such as in supervised learning. RL agents share the same failure points as supervised learning when deployed in the wild. You said that a static environment or static simulator refers to an environment whose factors of variation form a constant set throughout the course of training. And uh, you said that while a static simulator with adjustable parameters can span a vast space of tasks, ultimately it can only offer experiences within the limited domain that it was designed to simulate So I hadn't really thought about this before, this idea that even though the paradigm is more general, like the the way we train it and feed it data really isn't at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, you can sort of draw the analogy with supervised learning, where if I give you ImageNet, you basically just have the 1.2 million images in ImageNet, and you're not really going to expect the model to generalize beyond that. Um, If I give you um, a reinforcement learning environment like Atari, you're not going to, even if you master Atari, you're unlikely to master um, another environment. Um, that, that differs substantially from it. And so, um, so one motivation around these automatic curriculum learning methods is, um, if you can use them to essentially create these open-ended learning systems, because you have control of designing the environment, uh, while you train your agent, um, if you can make the design space rich enough, you can then conceivably have the teacher essentially guide the student through an endless multitude of environmental challenges. Uh, by di- by designing different variations of possible environments, hmm. and um, in the past, like Schmidt Huber have like Schmidt Huber's group has published several papers uh, along a similar direction of thinking, um, and they call this direction like artificial curiosity, and they have papers like uh, Girdle Machines and Power Play, uh, which basically follow similar ideas, um, and this idea is just you have an artificial system that designs its own challenges and tasks, and then you have a student component that tries to solve it, and essentially you keep pushing the student towards the horizon of tasks that it does not yet know how to solve. Mm-hmm. And so when, when you have a system like this, um, you could conceivably see that in like as time goes on, you have an increasingly general intelligence, one that just like keeps learning to master new and new tasks. And so that eventually, if the space of tasks um, that's designable by your artificial learning system is expressible enough, um, if it basically captures a superset of the real world then you expect that the agent has mastered most scenarios that it could also run into in the real world Hmm. and it again like tracing back to sort of the motivation of uh, this igi concept it doesn't have to be all tasks that exist because obviously that could take a tremendous amount of compute um to to do but you would you could constrain it you could say i just want the most general um i want the most general curricula agent uh, and a curriculum that basically traverses all kinds of different scenarios within a limited task domain. So maybe I want to do self-driving cars. I just want a simulator that's expressible enough where I can as- essentially run an auto curriculum over all possible traffic scenarios and then basically have an agent that can be very good at different kinds of traffic scenarios. Mm-hmm. Maybe that agent is like a traffic light. Maybe it's not a car, right? Maybe it's like, I just want a traffic light that's really good at optimizing traffic flow in lots of different distributions of traffic. Um, along the roadway. And so that would, then you can have an automatic curriculum over the different configurations of traffic, um, and then basically train the traffic light agent to be um, high performing across all these. Um, And then like, again, you would need a definition of what it means to balance performance across all of these different tasks. And so something like minimax regret could be something that could be applied there.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Let's talk about software 2.0. Now, um, you shared an image from Andre Kaparthi on your Twitter. About the space of possible programs with increasing complexity, I'll, I'll put a graphic up on on the screen. But um, yeah, GPT four, for example, is the most complex artifact ever created. We'll never understand it almost certainly beyond our comprehension. And uh, Kaparthy coined the term to describe how deep learning shifts the paradigm from instruction based to auto programming, and the program is found via optimization. Now, I personally think that to, you know, software 2.0, it doesn't just mean neural networks. It could presumably be a discrete program search or mm-hmm. some kind of discrete program yep. or even a confection of neurosymbolic programs enmeshed in what will become a collective intelligence. But um, yeah, what's your take on software
1: 2.0? Yeah, I, I think we're still in the very much in the process of transitioning to software 2.0. Um, and so, I, yeah, it seems that like for a lot of different tasks, it's just preferable. To coding, um, so so for so many domains, um, it's very difficult to actually like enumerate all the possible chains of logic you have to implement mm. in order to support um, high performing software. And this is like obvious to us now, um, but it's it is quite interesting because back in the day, I think before we had very powerful deep learning methods, um, we um, a lot of the a lot of the like more gold, good old fashioned AI systems were based on just like a set of rules essentially Mm. um and if you look at like older implementations of like google assistant or like siri like behind behind these systems back in the day they were just like a long list of regular expressions Um, and so these are the kinds of things where you move to software 2.0 it becomes more general like you can just you, you run GPT and it just, just parse the sentence for you. So it just makes a lot of sense for a lot of, whenever we come into contact with fuzzy data, I think that's when essentially you want to have something that's more 2.0 rather than like um, like continuing this terminology, something that's like more software 1.0, where it's like you're enumerating specifically the rules and chains of logic for handling each case.
0: Interesting. Yeah, so it's a good time to be alive. But now there's a fundamental disconnect from... The systems we build and, and our ability to understand them i mean is that something that concerns you
1: yeah definitely i think uh, interpretability is a huge issue um and so yeah I, I just i don't think there's many great uh solutions right now for interpreting these models and basically figuring out um if what they say is true for example is a very simple is a simple use case like basically figuring out why they think a particular statement is a valid answer to a question um yeah, I, I guess like attribution is something that people are trying, but I think in The Limit, uh, that's that's kind of defeating the purpose of using these models in the first place because people use them because they don't have time to actually look at the sources. So if the solution to actually um, making these models safer and more interpretable to the end user is to basically have them also look up the sources, it's kind of, it's a bit circular. It's basically defeating the purpose of using them to some extent.
0: Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I I interviewed Gary Marcus last week and um, he has a a real aversion to this. And you think of it as it's just another form of cognition that there are many ways of thinking about things and reasoning about things. And it's different to us. And you could instantiate a form of human cognitive chauvinism where you say, well, we have this very abstract way of thinking about things and we have causality and and whatnot. And the system doesn't do it. Although it often produces the right answer sometimes for the wrong reasons do, do you have a fundamental aversion to that?
1: Yeah, I think it's a huge issue like hallucinations are I think probably the the biggest uh, obstacle to essentially deploying these for lots of um, high value use cases mm-hmm. um with like large language models um a lot there's a lot of aspirational use cases currently um. I haven't seen too many cases where I think it's realized its full potential, like according to the narrative. Um, I think like copywriting is one. Um, Basically, all of the um, writer's block removal use cases. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the aspirational use cases are blocked by sort of like last mile issues where you really need like multiple nines of reliability for a lot of these use cases. Um, But language models currently don't have that. Uh, language models maybe don't even have like one nine of reliability for a lot of use cases. And so what that means is the best use cases for these models currently will be within model-in-the-loop or human-in-the-loop types of settings. Um, so I think the co-pilot use case is very good. Um, and a lot of people have pointed out that like maybe a good heuristic for what it what makes a good co-pilot use case is if you essentially have domains where the user could be expert, could be a layperson depending on um, the use case, if um essentially the generated solution is something that's easy to verify but costly to generate if um if the domain matches that for the end user then it seems like a good candidate for copilot types of use cases with a generative model um otherwise i think for like a lot of the more aspirational use cases for language models it just feels like like what if i had a language model that could essentially be an employee that just like codes a bunch of my software and then like directly launches it into production mm. um That seems like something that requires multiple nines of reliability that the current generation of models don't currently match
0: yeah interesting i mean i I found anecdotally that you you get a feel for how the language models work and anything inside the context if i'm asking it to summarize something it's extremely reliable and a lot of that is because it has the representational fidelity on a token by token level you know it hasn't hasn't forgotten anything Mm -hmm. if you like on all of the stuff it was fine-tuned on, it's all been compressed, entangled. It loses a lot of the mm-hmm. representational capability. But I wanted to, to shift back a little bit to um, your paper. So, you know, one of the big themes in your paper is that um, kind of like active, it's very similar to active learning, this idea of knowing what data to train myself on mm-hmm. and, you know, having mm-hmm. some notion of of novelty, uncertainty, and selecting the salient data to retrain myself on continuously. Yep. Now, it's very related to machine teaching as well. So when I learned about machine teaching, um, Microsoft Research got this program called Pickle, and essentially a human um, supervisor can kind of like interactively train a machine mm-hmm. learning model selecting the most salient training data, Yeah, and it's an interactive process. So, oh, that that's really salient, that's not salient, that's salient. And the 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 headline with machine teaching is that you can get remarkably, re- you know, robust and high-accuracy results with a fraction, a fraction of the data. And it might be related to this idea of iterative magnitude pruning, which is that actually you can prune away most of the mm. um, most of the the nodes in, in the network and still get very good performance. So there's something fundamental here about choosing the right data yep. for, for for the for the model.
1: Yeah. So like one of the core insights of one of our papers, uh, replay guided adversarial environment design, which introduced uh, uh, an algorithm called robust uh, prioritized level replay uh, was that it basically extended, it made a very simple extension of a previous algorithm called prioritized level replay, where essentially we found that if you don't train on, if you train on less data, you actually can show that you get a more robust Hmm. RL policy. And so this is like one of these rare cases where it's very clearly demonstrated that if you train on less data, you actually do better. And this is kind of interesting because it's it's counter to the general uh, trend, uh, the general findings in ML, which is if you train on more data, you're going to do better. Um, so in this case, when we care about having a minimax regret policy, when we want to have more robust agents, we can actually do better by training on less data, but on the higher quality, quote unquote, higher quality data. And essentially the change was just in prioritized level replay, we have the agent uh, visit as it's training. It's visiting different variations of the environment, and then you basically, you you essentially uh, sometimes you basically when you train on a new environment, you're training on those experiences. But then some percentage of the time, instead of visiting new environments, you visit a buffer of old environments mm. that are constantly being. It's a rolling buffer, so it's basically the set of environments that historically um, have induced the highest. Error, value prediction error in your agent, uh, but you can use like any measure of regret or any approximate measure of regret for that ranking metric, and you basically sample those, you upsample those uh, for vi- revisitation for replay, and you revisit those to generate new experiences, and then you train on those. And so by upweighing how often you visit the levels that are most challenging to your agent, um, we showed that. You essentially, at the time, we got state of the art on the OpenAI ProcGen benchmark, uh, where essentially we showed we had the best test performance uh, by training the agent in this way. Um, and then what robust prioritized level replay or robust PLR did was we basically made a very small tweak where we said on all the episodes where you visit new levels, uh, don't train on those experiences. Uh, only train on the experiences of the levels where you're revisiting the levels based on the priority. And so what that means is you are essentially simulating uh, as if you were training on levels that a regret maximizing teacher were presenting to you because the buffer is essentially like approximating this teacher. The buffer is like uh, essentially a teacher that's taking notes on how well the agent is doing in different environment settings and then keeping track of the most challenging ones and then giving those to the student. And so what we're saying is, don't train the student on any old environment. Only train the student on those high regret, those most challenging environments throughout the course of training. Uh, and so we essentially showed that um, the out-of-distribution performance of the agent, when you train it on only the most challenging levels, it increases uh, compared to if you were to train on both randomly sampled ones and the the filtered high regret ones. And so. Um that is that is a case where basically training on less data improves your policy.
0: Yes, yes. and there's a couple of things. I mean, as we said, there's the head and the tail of the distribution where the entropy is, but there's also this notion of there's good correlations and bad correlations. The good correlations generalize out of distribution, the bad ones don't. Mm-hmm. Um but you know it might be good to talk about this bootstrap problem. So um, you know we' we're, we're talking about the online setting here. And what we don't want our model to do is get stuck in a local minimum. We want it to be, um, well, not convergent, essentially. We want it to kind of continue to, to, to accumulate this information. So um, to overcome the convergent nature of, of our data distribution by using open-ended learning, which is, to say, presenting novel information where the performance is weak, um, you know, the question is, why wouldn't it still converge? And how do you distinguish weak performance from other forms of model failure which might be an artifact of the model architecture, or like you know, oh, ambiguous yeah.
1: predictions, or whatever. That's that's a really good question. I'm, so, to f- the first point about um, about essentially converging to like a suboptimal solution, this is generally a problem um, that's been given a, a, a good terminology called performative um, prediction. It's a yeah. setting where basically um, the predictions of your model uh, change its uh, change like the future data distribution that it's then iteratively retrained on. And so under the performative prediction setting, you can actually get two cases where um, essentially you reach a stationary point of this process um, where basically, because essentially you can view it in game theoretic terms as well, where basically your model makes a set of decisions and then those decisions have ramifications on um, on basically the data, distrib- uh, data generating process. And so if like the model's predictions alter the data generating process, it becomes like a strategic adaptation between the the model and the data generator Hmm. and so in these types of processes you can end up in cases where the learning process actually gets stuck because you reach a configuration of the system where like if the model is predicting as it's currently predicting according to its weights uh, the data generating distribution will uh, will basically change in a way where if I retrain on the change distribution my model weights don't change and so you end up in, like, essentially a stationary point. Hmm. Um, and so uh, the previous literature around this problem, uh, this this setting, essentially focus on analyzing the properties of this equilibrium. Um, in the open-ended learning setting, I think it's quite interesting because we really don't want this equilibrium. We actually want to avoid the equilibrium um, in an open-ended setting. So, like, in an open-ended learning setting, if you reach an equilibrium, um, you basically stop learning. Like That's just generally true for any learning system. And so in the fullest sense of open-ended learning, if we wanted a truly open-ended learning system, it should actually be one where we we only um, at most temporarily stay at equilibria like this. Uh, you want to essentially have a way to constantly push the agent out of the equilibrium mm-hmm. towards uh, learning new things. And so uh, the reason that you would fall into an equilibrium is if your design space of the set of tasks that you could present to the agent is limited Um, and eventually something that can like uh, saturate to an extent where basically at some point your learning process can saturate that design space and essentially the agent can learn to do well across all of it. So like the maze environments are often one example of this where uh, we find that like in the limit the agent actually just learns a very simple policy. So the maze environment is quite interesting because um, in the limit you actually learn a policy that doesn't even depend on memory um because in the beginning you need memory for it to like learn uh to remember where it's been and it learns somewhat suboptimal policies for a lot of mazes uh but it still relies on memory to to do what it does uh for these domains at some point the agent actually just learns an approximation of the left or right hand rule so a wall following strategy and for most mazes if it's singly connected and you do a wall following strategy you actually are guaranteed to always reach every you're guaranteed to like visit every walkable area of the maze and so you're guaranteed to reach the goal and so once you tra- so if you train the agent for like 100 million steps it doesn't know this yet and it's actually going to rely on memory but then if you train the agent for like a billion steps a lot of most of the seeds will actually converge to an approximate wall following strategy and at that point it it doesn't even need its memory um and so this is a case where like the d- domain can you can also have cases where like basically the domain the design space can seem open ended, but actually like the behaviors it induces are not actually that open ended, um, because there could just be a catch all sort of strategy that um, solves a lot of these behaviors. And so I think it's uh, it's definitely uh, it's definitely an open question in terms of like how do we actually design uh, problem settings or how do we design environment simulators that have the potential to keep inducing uh, this open ended. Uh, learning of new capabilities.
0: Yeah, because there's a couple of things. I mean, um, one of the aims of the POET paper was to create a divergent process that, you know, doesn't doesn't converge, basically. But um, you just gave the example of the wall-following behavior. And I mean, you can just look at it and mm-hmm. it will just scream out to you, oh, it, it's it's doing this behavior. But is there a comprehensive and generalizable framework for you to identify, you know, this bootstrap problem?
1: Yeah, so one... Well, so regarding the bootstrap problem, it can take different forms. So one is, one is you can get into like essentially a fixed point in your training procedure. Yeah. Um. That that is optimal for your data. Like maybe this fixed point is optimal. Um. From an open-endedness point of view, we don't like that because we actually want the agent to continue to learning. We want it to continue changing in what it can do. Um, I think from like a more traditional statistical deci- uh, statistical decision making f- type of viewpoint. Uh, that might actually be ideal because it's like, okay, you've learned an equilibrium that is optimal for your data set. So we're done. Uh, in an open-ended learning setting, I think we want to constantly be pushing the agent to um, to not be in equilibria with the environment. If the env- if it is, we want to change the environment so it can further adapt. Um, and so essentially, uh, it brings up the interesting question, which is how do you, how do you know that it's like essentially asymptotically uh, stopped learning? How do you know that it's no longer open-ended. You've lost the potential to be f- further open-ended. And uh, that's a really interesting open question. Um, I think that one way I've been thinking about it is you might want to look at the behavior of the agent. So you want to see, uh, are there ways that you can essentially... Um, and so you can look at the behavior of the agent, but then like ultimately what the behavior stems from is also like the weights of the model. And so one way, one way you can see if um, the agent is learning is... You do care if the environment's constantly changing, right? You you do care that like the environment's producing meaningfully new tasks. But one way to identify stagnation would just be to see if the weights themselves are um, have stopped changing, like if the gradients have stopped um, have stopped moving the weights. Um, and so essentially, you're just you've like converged to a fixed policy. And so like in the May scenario, you've converged to essentially an approximate wall-following policy. Um, but maybe if your distribution somehow had more islands or like if there's a way of like only generating mazes with islands that break this wall following assumption, maybe it would then change the weights more. Maybe you would end up like moving towards a different behavioral regime. Um and so that ties to your second point of the question, which is around what about just like issues, sort of more mechanistic issues, not around um the the generation of environments per se, uh, or even like the learnability of the environment, but more around um just like issues around neural plasticity, like basically like what if the network, uh, what if you stop learning not because you've reached an equilibrium, you can also stop learning just because from like more mechanistically, your weights have stopped updating, mm. maybe because you used ReLU activations and like the ReLUs have ended up in dead neurons because like the weights have gone to zero. Um, and so now no gradients are passing through those neurons. And so like, I actually think that um, a lot of the challenges of continual learning uh, well, so. These automatic curriculum learning uh, methods—they um, are essentially a form of curriculum learning because if you're a self-supervised system that's generating new tasks, and you basically—you—you you, you basically have the property that the robustness of the agent improves as you train on more and more uh, of these tasks. Well, you're actually in a continual learning setting. You're actually just—you're con- continually learning on new tasks all the time. And so, um, a lot of the issues that plague continual learning also. Um, they also rear their heads in this setting, which is basically um, you can have loss of plasticity uh, around essentially like neurons zeroing out. And when when that happens in continual learning, people have found that, you know, like your, your network will stop uh, improving. So there's a great experiment that came out recently um, where some researchers showed that you can essentially... Um, they, they devised essentially like a non-stationary version of uh, the Atari benchmark. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, Marlos Machado's group. And basically they had uh, essentially the agent rotate through playing different Atari games in a cycle. And so you play game one, two, three, four, and then you keep playing. And the idea is that um, you continually train the agent in the setting. Um, and you basically look at uh, the performance of the agent as it like visits every new game in each cycle. And what you see is that, like obviously, the games are quite different. So at first, you'll do really good at game one. You train on game two, your performance drops, and then over, you train more steps on game two, your performance goes up again, and then you that repeats for every single game. But then as and that's like the first rotation of the games. But then if you rotate a second rotation of the games, you see the same thing happen again. But then over time, what you see is that um, the the peak of performance that you reach it's slightly lower than the previous cycle. And so the, the basically, the neurons are losing plasticity in how much they can actually um, adapt to the new data. And so what they found actually is um, they just re- they, they realized, oh, we're, our policies, our reinforcement learning policies, they're based on ReLU activations, and ReLUs are known for this dying neuron problem where once you have zero, uh, zero activations, no gradients pass. And so like a lot of your neuron can actually die. They can zero out. And then basically you lose like the capability to update the network. And so they find that this was an issue underlying their model. And so what they do is they replace the neurons, uh, the ReLU activations. They replace it with something called a uh, concatenated ReLU, which is a CreLU. And basically this is, this is um, published a few years ago. But it's essentially, um, and if you look at the activation literature, there's actually a lot of works that look at alternatives to ReLU. Because ReLU, of course, is um, essentially y equals x for positive values, and then zero for negative. And so, basically, once you're in the negative regime, you have no gradients. Um, and so, there's a lot of works uh, like GeLU and like lots of like extensions of ReLU where essentially they they shape like the value of the function in yep. the negative regime, so that basically in the negative part of the x-axis, so that like you still have gradient information. But then what CreLU does is essentially quite clever, basically. It's called concatenated ReLU because what you do is you concatenate the outputs of two ReLUs. And ReLU one is just ReLU of X. And then the second thing you concatenate is ReLU of negative X. And so it's quite a simple idea where basically, okay, your value is either positive or negative. right? And so basically, um, uh, so, so, so if you concatenate that, like at least one half of that is going to be positive and you're going to have gradients flowing through it. Um, and so, or non-zero, and you're going to have gradients flowing through it. And so the the downside is, of course, it doubles like dimensionality of your representations because you're concatenating uh, what was once one value. You're doubling the demand, like you're doubling along that axis. Um, mm-hmm. And so, but they replace the RELUs with the CRELUs, and then they show that essentially now, if you do this non-stationary Atari, um, essentially you you just always recover like the original peak performance. So it, like basically mm-hmm. solves the plasticity issue in that setting. Um, so I'm very bullish on like basically like applying. A lot of, uh, I think, a lot of like the automatic curriculum learning mm-hmm. methods. I think that is a huge, my, I, I, believe that is a huge limitation to the work. Like, I think that it can achieve much higher potential in terms of like potential performance of your of the policies that it produces if we like adopt a lot of the best practices for addressing these plasticity issues that people have already studied in continual learning. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um. So we'll talk a little bit about
0: exploration in a static environment. So you said that these exploration methods in RL focus on a single predefined MDP as defined by the static simulator, rather than rather than over an inf, over an infinite set of possible MDPs as um, sought by active collection. Now you said that in recent years RL research has reorientated around learning optimal policies for distributions of environments, and the Poet paper springs to mind actually from Wang and uh, Lemon and Clune and Stanley. Um, which I think you would say did domain randomization. So mutating properties of the environment dynamically to produce adaptive uh, curricula over the parameters. So can you introduce the concept of how we could explore a subspace of environments? And and in particular, I know you've done some really interesting work in the space of unsupervised environment Mm -hmm. uh, design. And can you also introduce this idea of learning potential diversity and Mm. grounding? Because this is getting to the main formalism in your paper.
1: Yeah, so unsupervised environment design is actually a term coined by a collaborator, Michael Dennis, Hmm. um, in the paper where he um, studied the use of minimax regret in these multi agent curricula. And so, what we uh, use to, we've been using unsupervised environment design uh, mostly as a shorthand for an auto curricula where essentially the teacher is motivated to uh, maximize the regret of the student. Uh, But of course, you could use different objectives for the teacher. So, in the most general form, Unsupervised environment design is essentially a problem setting where you basically want to design a sequence of environments that maximizes some objective, Hmm. and usually that objective is a function of the student's uh, behavior. Um, And so, like when that objective is minimax regret, you end up with minimax regret unsupervised environment design, or we call it UED uh, for short. And essentially, um, the solutions to the UED problem setting they are essentially a curriculum. So curricula are solutions to this problem setting. Um, and so, um, most of the methods we previously discussed, uh, so far, like they are essentially UED methods, um, and a lot of existing curricula can also be, uh, viewed within that framework. Um, and so we, we basically, so I would say what's interesting is that, um, the poet paper from like, uh, from, from Ken Stanley's group, they basically, they, they essentially are doing a form of unsupervised environment design, um. Their criterion for the environment creation is just slightly different. Um, they're, using, um, they're using a minimal criterion co-evolution strategy, where essentially they're saying that uh, we want to choose environments where essentially like at least one of the agents in a population can solve the environment, and we're uh, co-adapting the population such that individuals in the population have to solve at least one of these environments. Mm-hmm. So at a high level, this is kind of what Poet is doing, and then what they further do is they generate new environments to maximize the novelty of the previous environments. Um, and then that, and then they filter based on this um, uh, coevolutionary criterion. Mm-hmm. And so um, it is a form of environment design. It's and it's also slightly different from the sort of methods we've looked at. So and it arises kind of from the objective because what they're doing is one, it's population based, and it's based on both novelty. It's based on essentially a population based novelty objective um, mm-hmm. with this coevolutionary criteria to ensure that like the levels and the agents are uh, mutually tractable. Mm-hmm. And what they end up with is a population of specialist agents. And so if you look at like the uh, poet agents, like the bipedal walkers, they generate really crazy environments, Um, crazier than I think some of the ones we've generated in ours. Um, But if you look at the way it's evaluated, like you essentially have a population of agents and the agents themselves are just individually good. They're specialists for like one of the environment instances. And so you have one agent that's maybe really good at going up like a uh, semi-circular hill, And then like maybe our agent can't do that um, or with like high success. But then their agent, the way they evaluate is they just take the argmax over the action probabilities. So they just are deterministically evaluating their agents. And so as long as your agent is found to solve this environment in simulation, it's always going to solve it, right? Because it's a a deterministic policy. Um, In contrast, our agents are also stochastic and we only have one agent. And so like at the end of training, we produce one single agent. So rather than a specialist, we call our agent a generalist. Um, and so, like our agent, we have a paper called uh, Excel, where essentially it's using a method uh, based on uh, an algorithm we previously discussed called prioritized level replay. But essentially, it's com- combining prioritized level replay with uh, evolutionary search. Um, so, like the buffer of levels that you keep that are the highest, most regret, most challenging levels, um, you essentially perform evolution over those levels. And then you basically have an evolutionary criteria that's also based on the regret of the agent. So, once you find one level or a set of good levels that are challenging to the agent, you can further evolve them and then keep the most challenging ones that have been involved. And that allows you to compound sort of the difficulties that you've discovered. Um, And so we find that with Excel, we're also able to... Excel also emerges a curriculum that visits lots of really crazy challenging terrains in the bipedal walker domain. Um, But at the end, you end up with a single agent that's trained to try to be mini max regret for all of these configurations. And so in practice, this looks like a single agent that can do a diversity of different environments. And so I think the effective range of the environments that the single agent ends up being successful on is likely much less than the full population of what the POET algorithm generates. Um, but the POET algorithm is also a population where each one is a specialist to one environment. Yeah. And so we're kind of a counterpart, a counterpoint to that approach where we generate a single agent that's a generalist across a multitude of environments. Um, and so along these lines, we've been exploring a lot of variations of these algorithms and sort of like over time, gradually unearthing different, um, like problems that are in, uh, inherent to this problem setting. And so like, we've talked about plasticity. We've talked about how do you do better search, like combining it with evolution. Um, How do you do better training, like only train on the high regret ones, don't train on the randomly sampled ones that you use during exploration. Um, But there's generally like, I view the set of problems. The interesting problem directions within the space of unsupervised environment design and auto-curricula in general, uh, as falling into like these three categories that you that you mentioned, Uh, and one is basically just estimating learning potential, which is basically saying, like as an example, we're using regret as the learning potential. We're saying if there's an environment where the Asian experiences high regret, well, well, what is regret exactly? Well, regret is basically how, what is the performance of an optimal agent? So like what's the highest return, for example, that an agent can achieve in this environment mm-hmm. um, minus like the difference between that and what my agent currently achieves. And that gap is like the gap between what, how you perform and what the optimal performer performs in that environment. And so that difference is uh, mathematically termed the regret um, in machine learning. And so basically this is a measure of learning potential. Um, in previous works though, We have found that, um, like with the original prioritized level replay paper, um, we found that uh, we didn't use regret at that time. We were using um, just the value prediction error. So we just look at the value network. So in reinforcement learning, um, there's a neural network that's co-trained with your policy network that makes the the, the decisions about what actions to take that predicts the future return from a given state. And um, essentially, that's called a a critic or a value network. And we essentially just look at the per time step, the average per time step error in the value prediction uh, for a given environment. Um, And then we use that average score as a measure of the learning potential for uh, revisiting that level. Because if you have a high gap in your, if you have a high error in your value prediction, it's a good indication that the agent is not fully, is not fully, um, aware of the challenges of that level. It's uh, it's basically a measure of surprise in the network. Uh, and so we can re-rank, we can reprioritize the levels and visit those where it has the higher value errors more often. And so that's an example where essentially value error is an alternative learning potential metric to regret. And interestingly, uh, a recent DeepMind paper um, called ADA, this adaptive agent work, uh, they essentially applied these auto-curricular methods um, to a rich 3D environment called xLand. And essentially, they found that when they applied prioritized Level Replay to this environment, you can get improvements in terms of the agent's performance on held-out tasks. Uh, but they tried lots of different scoring functions, and um, apparently, the best performing one was this uh, value error metric from the original paper. Um, so, uh, it's quite interesting. So, like, going from the original one to the extension, robust Prioritize Level Replay, we moved to using a more regret-inspired metric and what's interesting is that it seems like there's many different metrics that all seemed to be good um essentially uh good ways of prioritizing different environment settings for training mm-hmm. um they all seem to work in d- to different extents in different environments um and we currently don't have i would say the clearest understanding for how do we like methodically choose the best uh criterion we d- we do know that like for example value prediction errors or like these temporal difference errors they work really well generally across the board in lots of environments um pretty much every environment that we've tried but um there's essentially um an open question which is like what is the best form of this learning potential estimator uh that we should be using uh to rank the training data for training um and this is like also an open question and for example active learning in the more traditional active learning literature where there's mo- there's many different uh, active learning selection criteria that people use for choosing the next data point from a pool of data to to learn from, and um, and so this is like a similar open question, which is just if we're if we're trying to optimize reinforcement learning agents' learning potential, what should be the the best estimate? Because like another related set class of estimators would be more based on uncertainty as well, and so like you could imagine like having. Um, an ensemble of value networks and then taking like the standard deviation of their predictions Um, and then basically you bootstrap each one off of slightly different subsets of your data and then you take the standard deviation of the predictions at each state and then you um, take the average of that over your whole episode and then like the higher that is then the more epistemically uncertain your agent is about the future transition dynamics of your environment so basically that would again be like uh, that's an uncertainty based estimator that's been explored in the literature as well and so um and that is actually completely different from the notion of regret. So that's not actually measuring regret anymore. It's just measuring based on how uncertain, how, how much knowledge am I lacking mm-hmm. in my network. And I want to explore parts of the space based on that. So that's like more tied back to Ken Stanley and Joel Lehman's approach around just novelty search. Because you can argue that maximizing for your uncertainty is just a form of novelty search. Um, but then again, you could also say maximizing regret maybe is a form of novelty search as well, um, but slightly different. Um, Like basically they might coincide but they might also differ in some important ways Um, because it might be that you have an environment space where you just can't help but you have to increase regret in one area in order to reduce it in others. On regret though, wouldn't you need to know what the um, best episode is? Yeah, so so this is again another problem in the learning potential area where the question is if we want to stick with minimax regret methods how do we estimate the regret because you're right to me- to estimate the regret, you by definition need to know like the true regret. You have to know the optimal performance, hmm. and so th- this requires knowing the oracle policy, like the true yeah. policy. Yeah. And so this is kind of a this is kind of a chicken and egg problem because now it's like I need to already know how to solve it in order to learn a policy that solves it. And so basically, uh, in practice, we have regret estimators. And so one one type of regret estimator is just uh, we we basically make the argument in robust P L R that the positive value loss can be seen as a type of regress estimator. So the positive value loss is basically the same as the value loss estimator, um, where instead of taking the L1 value loss, we basically take the L1, we take the value loss only average, we take the value loss, but we clip it to be between zero and positive infinity. And so it's only the positive value loss time steps. Right. And we take the average over all time steps for that. And so basically, um, what this means is that if your value function, if you assume your value function is a very, uh, very accurate estimator of the future value, like the future return of a given state, then you can basically view, uh, you can view like the distance between how well you can do, like an estimate of how well you can do, versus how well you just did, as a gap in terms of um, like realizable potential in terms of your performance, and so that is like a form of a regret estimator, and then another form that's a bit more expensive that requires a second agent to compute is the one uh, from uh, Michael Dennis's original paper. Um, in a method where he uses three agents, one is a teacher, one is a student, but then the third one is essentially a student that's teamed up with the teacher mm-hmm. And so the teacher's goal is to find environments where the second student does better than the first student. And that basically ends up being a lower bound on regret. So basically if you, if you maximize this lower bound, you're going, you're also maximizing the regret.
0: Interesting, interesting. And um, and what about the these other two um terms in your formalism then? So so you, you introduced this concept of grounding, which mm-hmm. I think is very important and possibly actually related in, in some sense to RLHF, because it's presumably human um inspired, but
1: but also how, how do you formalize um exploration? Yeah. And so so in terms of the other challenges around exploration, one is like we just talked about the guiding, sort of like the guiding objective, which is, you know, maybe it's novelty, learn like or regret, like some yeah. sort of learning potential based measure how good the data points are the other is uh diversity because it's possible that um a lot of these metrics i think implicitly encode diversity because if like i want to maximize regret at some point the agent will just be good at the environments i throw at it and so to further maximize regret i probably need to give it a more diverse set of environments and so in a lot of ways diversity could be um just baked into the objectives but in empirically we have found that um, a lot of these methods like even with the excel evolutionary search algorithm um, they tend to mode collapse. They tend to collapse into like a specific subset of the environments. And this is actually to be expected because ultimately, like the way we look for the next data point with the highest learning potential um, is we are like in way, in a way optimizing for those data points. And so when you optimize specifically for that, you can mode collapse into just solutions um, that have high learning potential according to your metric. And so uh, in practice, we might need to explore ways to further add diversity to... Um, Uh, to how we measure what is a good next environment or data point for learning. We might actually have to bake in some auxiliary notion of diversity to just help regularize that search. And the third thing that I see as a major challenge is just grounding. So this is the notion that you've you've, uh, been alluding to, which is um, basically in an open-ended search process, um, we basically design these processes to maximize some some learning potential objective for the student. But um, because all this is happening in simulation, um, we can ultimately start to diverge from reality. We can diverge from presenting problem instantiations that um, are close uh, to real problem settings that we care about. So um, in in like, for example, if we're are if we continue this um example of this training a robotic walker agent inside of some sort of like, terrain simulation to walk robustly over lots of different kinds of terrain we might actually just start generating really ridiculous terrain that it's likely never going to to run into in the real world. Um, and so the question then becomes how do we how do we essentially how do we make it so that uh, the teacher is not presenting uh, environment instances that differ too much from the actual domain we want to transfer to and so another way that this um, another way that this actually comes about, is you can have um, you can have basically settings where essentially key distributional properties of your simulated curriculum environments can deviate from like the true distribution. Um, and so like if you have a deployment domain where you say, oh, there is just like some random variable in the environment where I know based on historical records, like this is the probability. So maybe like I'm playing a game of chance like a casino game. And I want to train an agent to make like robust decisions across any like maybe set of poker hands or any set of um, actual um, like lay of cards. And so in that case, um, if I'm training against an adversarial teacher in a curriculum, they could present lots and lots of different hands. But they might actually start gravitating towards hands where my policy is just uniquely bad at. But in that process, they're actually changing the distribution of hands. So they're actually changing some aleatoric uncertainty, some uncertainty that's just baked into the game that I can't like reduce with more observational data. And so you're basically changing some core distributional property of your domain of interest. And if you basically use these methods to optimize for policies in these kinds of like stochastic environments, what we found empirically is that um, you can actually just like le- get into situations where the adversary, uh, the teacher designing the environments they just exploit essentially these um, specific hands that induce high regret for you. But then because they're exploiting specifically like a subset of these hands, they're changing the distribution over the outcomes. So when you move into the real world and you like actually transfer into the real setting, you have your, your policy is now optimal for like completely the wrong distribution. Um, and so we have a recent paper at NeurIPS, uh, last NeurIPS, where basically we fix this issue by saying that we can actually... We can actually have an agent train on these biased samples from a curriculum, but still ensure that when we transfer it into the real domain, uh, where there is like a fixed specific uh, distribution uh, over certain random variables in the environment, we can ensure that it's still optimal for that as well. And so there's a way where you can basically say, I'm going to allow the curriculum, essentially in a nutshell, we can say, we let the teacher, we let the teacher take the agent to any possible state or configuration of the environment. But what we do is... We, we commence training from these like, very difficult states, but all transitions in the future are going to be resampled as if they came from the true distribution that we know about in the actual transfer domain. So like, the way the system evolves is basically, we basically say, you can think of it as saying, if the teacher wants me to start with this hand of poker, I'm going to calculate all future transitions as if I landed in this, this hand of poker, um, starting from like the true distribution of hands. And so then, basically, that means that like all other agents are—they're like all other future outcomes are going to be sampled as if they came from like the true distribution, rather than a biased distribution, where I only ever get this one hand.
0: Is that similar to Go
1: Explore? Um, so with Go Explore, it would actually fall into this issue as well, because I would with Go Explore, it's specifically taking you back to um, like those most challenging uh, parts of the environment. Yeah. Or I guess it's not so. Go Explorer is a little bit different. It's based on novelty rather than regret. So okay. Go explorer is based on um, I want to I want to keep a buffer of, of environment states where basically, um, yeah. starting from this state, uh, I experienced the most future novelty, and so essentially uh, you can view it as like also a kind of curriculum learning, uh, but essentially it's it's also going to run into this issue in environments with some with these kinds of aleatoric uncertainty aspects one concrete example is if you're playing if if you have some sort of environment where um where there's where it's stochastic where basically it's random in terms of like whether you get into certain rooms inside of this environment and maybe the outcomes in different rooms are different mm-hmm. then essentially uh, go explore if one of the rooms just happens to be more challenging go explore might always take you into like one room rather than another like if the transition if you have a maze where essentially you can either be in room a or b after you go through a door and then like a and b have different maybe monsters or something that you have to fight um and then for some reason the agent is just much better at room a so then basically you might end up all a curriculum might end up taking you into room b more often but then now like your agent is essentially learning to be optimal with the assumption that the door always takes you into room b hmm. and so if in go explore like room b just has more novelty then basically your go explore policy would always want to go back to states in room b but then if there is some stochastic nature in terms of like how when you go through the door you're either in room a or b then the go explore policy would also learn to favor like to basically expect that you're always going to room b rather than there maybe is actually like a 50% chance in the real domain of going into room a or b and so now you're also going to learn a policy that's actually suboptimal because it's optimized for the wrong expectation in terms of that transition. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um,
0: which domains do you think are most suitable for open ended learning?
1: I think um, so. The obvious uh, domain of practical importance here would be robotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, robotics is already like a lot of robotics is already happening uh, with sim to real and more recently with this like real to sim to real, where you basically like, fit your simulation to periodic bouts of real data. Um, And that's like already a happening trend. Uh, And I think a lot of robotics work already looks into how you can use curricula to improve like robustness of these robots. Uh, And I think obviously a lot of the UED work just slots in naturally as alternatives to some of these methods. Um, For example, anywhere where roboticists are using domain randomization in simulation, uh, you can try using uh, unsupervised environment design curriculum. Um, and similarly, like, I would say you can generalize this application pattern to like, any setting where because UD assumes a simulator, right? because you have to control the environment settings, you can assume any uh, domain where people do sim to real, I think is a potential application of this, mm-hmm. where in sim to real you typically want to do domain randomization to make your policy robust to lots of different environment variations, and so anywhere where you're doing sim to real, those are prime candidates for applying unsupervised environment design, mm-hmm. um, because essentially a, just a more, it's essentially um, a more principled way of uh, essentially selecting the randomized settings that you train your agent on in simulation, and so like one really cool case I think would be applying it to the uh, like the plasma control uh, for the tokamak reactor because a lot of that my understanding is was done in simulators. Um, so I think it'd be quite interesting to apply some of these autocurricular curriculum methods uh, for training the plasma control policy.
0: Interesting, interesting. And these are some of the questions that you actually write yourself at, at the end of your paper. So it's very, very instructive. Um, another interesting one is um, how do we design scalable, open-ended data generators?
1: Yeah, I'm um, so. So I think uh, more and more that is becoming clear. Uh, where I think that um, we're in, like, the golden age of uh, generative models. Uh, And basically, if we wanted a truly open-ended, if we wanted to move beyond, like, a single simulator paradigm, and we want to go into full exploration over, you know, all possible environments, have a truly open-ended simulator that can simulate any type of task, and eventually train a student agent with a curriculum to master, like, pretty much all major... Um, types of tasks within the simulator, or like to be increasingly intelligent within the space of this this design space, you would have to have invented a very general parameterization of all possible environments, which would lead you to the conclusion that you would have to basically do this at the level of searching over programs, which is the conclusion that Schmidhuber came to uh, with PowerPlay and with um, with GoTo machines, where basically he was talking about an algorithm that would iterate through essentially um, the space of programs Mm. um, and essentially um, monotonically improve that way. But now that we have very powerful generative models, one very obvious direction is to treat these generative models themselves as a universal parameterization for a large space of tasks. And so if I had, for example, like you could imagine uh, training very large generative models on video games, or you can imagine just using an existing language model, uh, like a language model or maybe a multimodal model to simulate um, lots of different games, because it's likely that um, they've already been trained on enough data that they can simulate lots of different types of transitions. And so you can already start to use these existing generative models um, as essentially um, universal universal simulators for mm-hmm. a very large set of tasks and use these to um, essentially simulate environments and environment transitions for a student that then tries to master those tasks uh, all within, you know, it would have to be within the confines of like the parameterization of the language model or of the generative model that you're using. Um, but I think that it's pretty clear that one path forward is to essentially start training agents, uh, open-ended agents within the, the latent, essentially within the design space that's captured by a generative model.
0: Interesting, interesting. And on this um active collection thing, how much prior knowledge should we use to ground exploration? It's very interesting.
1: Yeah, so this is um so we ran a workshop uh called Asian learning and open-endedness at iClear in twenty uh, twenty two or 2021. Mm. And basically uh this was one of the topics that kept coming up in the panel discussions. Um which was basically uh yeah, just basically if we want to be open-ended, how much sh- how much prior knowledge should we bake in? Um Yeah. And I think it's really just, it's, it's unclear. It's unclear what, what that hyperparameter is. Um, and maybe in fact, maybe it's, uh, maybe what you would want to do is you start with a very high setting for that, where it's very grounded in the beginning. And as you get better and better at all the ordinary things, you start to dial that down and you start to, you say, I'm already good at all the things that, you know, are well grounded are very close to things that happen in uh, the real world. So now I want to explore more. I want to actually start to Learn about the things that are more maybe like imaginary tasks, or maybe tasks that are more um, hypothetical tasks, and also start to do well in those.
0: How how will you know if the MDP is different, or if you're experiencing a different part of the same MDP? He said.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's that's definitely a fair question. I think the main the main thing that you would use to tease apart um, different MDPs would be it would be like quite a behavioral definition which is basically you would just look at the learning potential uh, metric you're using. So if you were to experience one MDP, uh, if you were to experience an MDP that uh, you've already learned to perform well on, like if you're using a regret-based learning potential measure, um, then you would achieve a pretty low regret in that environment. And so versus another environment where it's like materially different enough that your performance suffers, Maybe you haven't learned how to solve a particular aspect of that environment, then your learning potential metric should be much higher. Um, and this would generally be the case for a lot of different kinds of choices, like for uncertainty-based um, or for regret-based. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's the same part of the MDP, I would say that's actually not important, like because maybe you maybe the MDP has many different ways of solving. Maybe there's part of the state space where you already know how to solve it. Maybe it has part of the state base, state space where you don't know how to solve it. I would argue that that's not too different from just having two MDPs, where one you know how to solve and one you don't, um, because ultimately with a lot of um, these, a lot of these environments, you can actually you can always just sort of slot everything into one mega MDP anyway, and you can just say actually I'm gonna I'm going to um, I'm gonna append I'm gonna extend the state space of my MDP with another uh, variable that basically is just like the task ID, and like that task ID basically is like. It's often called a context in the literature where people study contextual MDPs, but that's like really just an MDP where you have another, uh, you have another variable that basically is the context, um, and that defines maybe like the environment looking slightly different depending on the context. And so you can always, you can always view different MDPs, even if they're essentially different MDPs, you can always view them as part of a larger contextual MDP, you know, and you can you can view them combined in this like larger MDP. Um, so really this brings, actually this brings me to another interesting point, which I think is that, um, when you view it this way, uh, when you view, uh, this idea of like viewing lots of different tasks and MDPs as all being part of like one sort of super MDP where you just extend the state space Mm -hmm. with a task identifier, um, then you can really see the connection between, um, more traditional like exploration methods where you're trying to like basically expand. Uh, the set of states that your policy visits during training, hmm. um, you can actually start to see like this direct parallel between those methods, and like not even a parallel, like an equivalence between those methods and curriculum learning methods, where really the curriculum is doing exploration over the set, the the subspace of contexts mm-hmm. in those MDPs. Mm-hmm. And so, really, like this is kind of this view that I have, where uh, essentially you can just view automatic curriculum learning methods as essentially like a ex- set of exploration methods uh, over the context space of MDPs. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. He also
0: said, even if the Oracle knows the space of MDPs, the MDP is usually given by the environment and not controlled by the agent. How then would the Oracle bias the collection of data?
1: Yeah. So that's a, that's a really good question related to the grounding point. And so like, if you have these stochastic environments where, uh, being optimal relies on being uh, optimal with respect to a specific expectation Mm -hmm. over Random variables whose uncertainty can't be reduced in your ex- episode. So I can't learn a policy that just thoroughly explores the environment to figure out the value of that random variable and then be optimal conditioned on that random variable. If that random variable is like in like blackjack or something where it's just always there's always some amount of like noise I can't reduce, then you have to be optimal with like the true noise distribution. Hmm. But then if you do, um, if the teacher is controlling the the context of your learning. It can actually bias towards specific outcomes so you're going to have um, essentially a covariate shift over that variable and so we call that uh, a curriculum induced covariate shift mm. uh, or kicks and we like to more of the math behind that in um, our recent Europe's paper uh, but basically we propose a method to solve that so that basically there is a method you can use to solve that and it just entails essentially um, when you train on the curriculum levels which are biased now because it's bi- it's biased data and you want to train on biased data because that's the whole argument for using curricula but then you're in this paradox because if I train on biased data now I'm learning a biased policy hmm. uh, and so essentially our method says that um, you can actually adjust like the probability of future transitions assuming a prior knowledge of the actual aleatoric distribution. If you have a prior knowledge of what the true chances are what the true probabilities are you can ground uh your future transitions to be consistent with both your initial starting state which is determined by the teacher and which is biased mm-hmm. you can end the uh, the true distribution so as long as you can actually like make the future transition probabilities consistent with both your current starting state and the true distribution over these unobservable variables and as long as you can ground it in this way you can then make sure your future transition probabilities are consistent and so then your policy provably has to be learning a optimal policy for the true probabilities, but it just now has the benefit of specifically visiting actively those specific states it could be in under that true distribution that are more challenging for it. Very cool, very cool. John
0: also asks, to what extent do you think the universe of MDPs can be parameterized? Is there a universal function space for all environments or is this ideal
1: I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think the idea is very much in discussion on the table. Um. I think it's the equivalent question to essentially what is the extent of large language models. Right. I think it's pretty much the same uh question because because if language models are truly general and they can model pretty much any you know setting that a human might find themselves in, which is kind of the current goal. Maybe not a single language model. Maybe you need something that's multimodal. But it we are on track to try to do this with large generative models. And so if we can succeed with that, then this just doubles as a universal privatization. Interesting, interesting. And final question, he
0: said, what do you think of goal-directed learning?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. We haven't, uh, this is something that I think is like really interesting to explore more in the context of UED, uh, unsupervised if, environment design. And could you introduce what, what we mean by yeah. that? Yeah, so uh, goal, goal, goal-conditioned learning in reinforcement learning typically means that um, your policy is now conditioned on an additional variable which is like the goal. So you can define a simple example would be if you're in a maze environment, you can actually make the goal an XY position in the maze. So like a specific tile in the maze and you say the goal is to reach this tile. Yeah. And so your policy can learn to be optimal for uh, the set of all goals. And uh, this is like a subset of research in RL where you wanna have these goal conditioned policies. Um, so you can view the goal as actually just an extension of the environment parameterization. So in principle, if you learn minimax regret optimal policies um for the s- environment design space you can do the same for an environment design space that's just the same environment design space that's been augmented with this additional goal variable hmm. and so you should be able to then cr- learn auto over the goals um and uh, some there's a there is a lot of existing work though around goal conditioned exploration uh in the more traditional uh purchase to like state state-based exploration where you just provide like um, an intrinsic reward to the agent based on novelty uh, of a particular state you haven't visited before Mm -hmm. uh, or that you're visiting for the first time. And so um, actually, um, uh, my advisors, uh, Ed and Tim, uh, they had a paper with um, collaborator uh, Roberta and uh, Andres uh, Camparo, who's the first author. They had a paper called Amigo um, from a couple of years ago. And this is a goal-based exploration method. Um, yeah where basically the teacher is incentivized to propose goals that challenge the agent uh, according to essentially uh, a learning potential criterion. Amazing, amazing.
0: <clears throat> Minji, we've come to the end the end of the interview, but just before we close, um, Ed said to me that you are one of the smartest people he's ever met, and he was absolutely right. but I just wondered whether so many folks watching MLST you know, we'll be looking up to you for inspiration into how to become a researcher. And I just wondered if you had any passing thoughts and advice just to give to people.
1: Well, that's incredibly uh, flattering uh, coming from Ed. Um, And I thank you so much for having me on. This was a really fun discussion. Pleasure. Uh, I've been watching your videos for a while. And um, in terms of parting thoughts, I guess uh, like regarding open-endedness, I think that right now there's just so much, frenzy over large language models. Um, and I think a lot of researchers, I think, might be having, you know, doubts about, you know, if, if they're not currently on the large language model train, train or bandwagon, <laughs> maybe they should jump onto it. Um, but I think in the spirit of open-endedness, it's very um, very beneficial to, to continue, you know, focusing on whatever personal interests or obsessions that, you know, researchers have themselves um, and just like focus on that. And really, like, I think the diversity of research agendas is ultimately going to be the thing that gets us to the next level of artificial intelligence. Um, Like, all this stuff right now is incredible, and it's amazing. Um, But I do think that, um, yeah, it's easy to to sort of, like, lose your own personal obsessions that make your research unique in the noise. And I, I definitely feel a lot of that as well. Like, there's a lot of pressure to, I think, move research agenda to be more aligned with, like, the current large models. Um and I think part of it is just to it is just like start is just still I guess trying your best to find, you know, a unique sort of unique path through all of that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Ever since I discovered Stanley and Clune,
0: I have become convinced that open-endedness is one of the most important features of of future AI. And I'm also personally very interested in um, Turing machine programs in addition to neural networks, because there, there are things you can do on Turing machines that you can't do in neural networks. So very interested in discrete program search. But yeah, um, open-endedness is, is so, so important. Yep. Um. Anyway, Minchi, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.